0: I think to be a good horror director, or to be a horror director at all, I think you have to make peace with the demons that you have inside, because everybody has them, you know. And I think that it's just easier to put those out in the in film than it is to live them in real life. So.
1: Hello and welcome to Spill Your Guts, I'm your host, Kevin Lane. The Masters of Horror. These are the genre filmmakers whose work have made generations of filmgoers not only fall in love with horror, but who have left a permanent imprint on film history and popular culture. One need only look at the small selection of the greatest hits of these filmmakers to see their undeniable impact. Of course, the title of Master of Horror can be open to interpretation, but the official title came from one horror hero filmmaker and genre ambassador, Mick Garris began bringing together a group of the genre's most iconic filmmakers for dinners at various Los Angeles restaurants. It was one of the masters himself, Guillermo del Toro, who created the title when wishing a nearby table a happy birthday. Happy birthday from the masters of horror. Some of the regular participants and holders of the master title include, but are not limited to, John Carpenter, Toby Hooper, Stuart Gordon, John Landis, Joe Dante, Don Coscarelli, Larry Cohn, and Tom Holland. Multiple other Masters attended, but this group and our guest today seem to be the core Masters. In this episode, I will be sitting down with one of the true Titans of Terror, William Malone. William and I talk on his early love of The Creature from the Black Lagoon and Forbidden Planet, and how he almost did remakes for both. His beginnings at famed mask creator Don Post Studios, where he sculpted the original Michael Myers mask, demystifying the incredibly talented but let's say troubled actor Klaus Ginski and why making movies is both revealing and embarrassing. William Malone's films share the same quality of most great directors' bodies of work and that their style and vibe carry the unique qualities that are the signature of the person behind the camera. You know a William Malone movie when you see it. Whether it's his early monster movie, Scared to Death or Creature, or his now classic remake of House on Haunted Hill, or the nerve-frying fear.com, William continues to be one of the genre's sharpest eyes and clearest voices. So let's grab a seat at the table and listen in with Master of Horror William Malone. Hey, Bill. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. I'm really looking forward to this. I, I know you're a big Forbidden Planet fan, so I'm guessing that goes back to when you were a youngster.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, like when I was, a good, I, I actually can uh, sort of bring it all back to one event. I mean, my mom. God knows why she did this. She took me to see creature from the black lagoon when I was 5 or six, 6 6 years old there you go. And uh you know and I remember sitting behind the seats like this you know and it was in 3D you know and it scared the crap out of me but I remember going home and having you know sort of uh dreams about the creature and I thought
1: well that that's that's cool you know so that sort of
0: hooked me then. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like, is that your definitive movie for the first movie you remember freaking you out?
0: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember seeing some other movies when I was really young. I remember I must, I must have been two or three years old, and they took me to see Dave Years, stood still. And all I remember is some Iron Guy walking around. And it wasn't scary right. to me because I didn't, I couldn't, I had no frame of reference. But, but yeah, I mean, The Creature is the first movie that I really you know, locked on to and, you know, and, uh, it had been a huge creature from the black Lagoon fan ever since, you know,
1: there's so many universal monsters that have had splashy remakes and they've never quite got there with the creature from the black Lagoon.
0: It's funny, you know, I actually met on a remake of creature. They, uh, they wanted me to do a remake and I went in and, and I, I, I started to pitch out by saying, you're not going to like what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I said, um, um, you know, I know what you want me to say. You want me to say I'm going to come in here and I'm going to I'm going to redesign the creature and make it, you know, much more fleshy and more facial expressions. And I said, I said, if you do that, it's going to fail miserably and everybody's going to hate it, because the creature is the creature, and it's like making a Humphrey Bogart movie with uh, Tom Cruise. You know, it's not. <laughs> And claiming it's Humphrey Bogart, you know, doesn't matter how good it is. It's just not the same. And people know who the creature is. So, and of course I didn't get the job. <laughs> of course, nobody got the because they didn't do it. Because I, I told them the truth, you know, you can't mess with the creature.
1: Yeah. Do you think the Guillermo del Toro, uh film that he did was sort of the closest that we're going to get?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that was so, sort of homage to the creature and, and without actually being the creature. And there's been several over the years where we're trying to do something like the Humanoids from the Deep and, and uh, you know, a, a few others that I can think of. But, but yeah, I mean, the creature, uh, I, you could do a remake of the creature, but you'd have to make the creature identical to the way it was in the original movie. Otherwise, people just wouldn't like it, you know. There's some movies. It's like, well, even let me just say, say something about the creature, the design. If you look at the movies, even the remakes or not the remakes, the sequels weren't as good as because they didn't use the molds from the original. They resculpted it, and there's just something missing about it. It's that it's something that's so specific that it works, and it's and you change any one element, and
1: it's just not not working anymore you know, less specific monsters to me, like Michael Myers, you know, and it's it's a Shatner mask and all this stuff that they, you know, but fans went crazy in the sequels in a bad way when it didn't look like the mask from the first film. And that's a much more less important detail than the creature.
0: Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. I, I mean, you yeah, know, it's like, um, you know, I met on, people wanted me to to do a remake of Forbidden Planet. You know, and I said to them, I said, look, first of all, you can't redesign the saucer because the saucer, you can make it make the interior different, but the outside's perfect. If you screw with it, it's not going to be good. And uh, I said, Robbie the robot, are you going to tell me you're going to design a better robot than Robbie the robot? It's just not going to (laughs) happen.
1: I'm thinking like Lost in Space when they remade that and they sort of tried to upscale it too much. And you're like, well, you kind of lost the quality of it that makes it fun if you make it too slick
0: yeah yeah and uh you know it's like there's certain movies you should never remake because you're not going to do it better Uh twenty thousand leagues under the sea comes to mind the disney film it's like come on are you going to design a stunt nautilus that's cooler than that one i don't think so
1: <laughs> never gonna happen now i read that you started uh, also doing in a in a like a a garage band called the Plagues. Yeah, I had a band in you know in in, uh, uh, in the
0: mid '60s called the Plagues, and, and uh, uh, we were sort of a Beatle band, is what we were really. And uh, uh, you know, and it was an era when very few ple- people played guitar. And you know, if you had a band, you were like you know uh, king of the world right then. You know, so it was great fun in high school. We put some records out and. We actually, uh, I think we put three records out, and one of them is fairly well reviewed these days. So, yeah. Oh, cool. Do you still play? I do. You can't help it, you know. Once you play, you always play. But you know, I uh, I had a band in the '90s called the Next Insects, you know, and uh, uh, that was sort of a, a Beatles band too, but it was all original tunes, you know. I I, I can write what would be monster hits. But unfortunately, there'd be monster hits in 1965, so it All doesn't right. do me much good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that was what inspired you to move to Los Angeles was to pursue a music career.
0: Yeah, I came out actually to to, to uh, pursue music, but I couldn't find three guys that, three other guys that weren't like a high on drugs or could make it to the rehearsals or any of that stuff. So. So pretty quickly that became apparent right. that that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> and so
1: the, the next thought was, well, I better make movies instead.
0: <laughs> well, exactly. there were some uh, stops along the way, but yeah, generally. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, I worked in Don Post Studios for a while making masks and, and uh, you know, um, and then by 1980, I decided that, you know, I wanted to make movies since I was a kid. And I said, you know, just quit and say you're a director and just go do it. That's what I did. Took the savings. Yeah. Made
1: you went to UCLA. Is that right? I, yeah. Let me clarify
0: that. Cause it sounds, it sounds better than what it is. It's like, I, it. I actually just, I just took like uh, uh, basically night classes and it was, I, I focused in on working with actors because I felt that I was fairly proficient on cinematography and, making actual films and stuff like that. And that was actually after I'd already made uh, Scared to Death and Creature. So I just felt that that it would be nice to, uh, uh, you know, specifically work on performances and stuff like that. So
1: That makes sense. Because when I was reading about it, I couldn't figure out the timeline. I was like, you made these movies while you were at UCLA. Like I couldn't quite piece together how that all worked.
0: Yeah, that was after the fact, which actually turned out to be a good thing because I met a lot of good people there at UCLA, and, and uh, that's how I wound up. In fact, the one guy, Bill Froelich, uh, was in my class, and we wound up uh, ma- doing Freddy's Nightmares, which was the first first uh, DGA job I ever had.
1: I got the Freddy's Nightmares stuff, but I just got them today, so I didn't get a chance to watch your episode. Can you tell me a bit about it? Yeah, you don't want to watch it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, I think that Freddie's was great fun to do. The, this, the, 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 they were, the shows were terrible, but I had a great deal of fun doing it because uh, we could just do any wacky idea that we had because it was on, I don't know, came out at like two o'clock in the morning or something like that, the show. So nobody really cared. The producers didn't care. It was like a cash cow to them. So Any as long as we came in on time and on budget, they didn't care. So I really used it as a, a, as a a sort of proving ground to try out wacky ideas that I had. You know, so it was it was great for that.
1: How many episodes did you do? Uh, I
0: think I did three, and they were all hour episodes because they were like they wanted to break them up into like half hour segments. So there was like they were like two parters, and so forth. But uh, and then after that, I did a show called. um, Dark Justice. We used to call it Just Darkness because, again, it was like a. We'd do our shows shot in four and a half days, you know, which was just brutal. Yeah, you know, if the actor got anywhere near the line, you go flat print, moving on.
1: That's almost (laughs) like kind of like shooting soaps or something. That kind of timeline. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, they probably more
0: have more time on soaps than we did. I don't know. It it was it was brutal. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I want to know about Night Turkey. By the way, I read a reference to Night Turkey. What is that?
0: Well, it's actually the first thing I ever did, you know, it was shot on the first video camera, the home video camera you could buy. And it was on a Sony 3400, was shot half half inch reel to reel videotape. Um, And so a friend, uh, some friends of mine, we all got together and said, let's make a movie and I said, "Well, what are you going to make about it?" And, th- and I thought about it. I said, "Why don't we do a spin on Night Stalker, the Darren McGavin movie? You know, the the first one, and uh, we'll call it Night Turkey, and it'll be about a guy who has to to uh, uh, track down a, a, a weir turkey, a guy who turns into a turkey." <laughs> and we, and then we said, "Well, he can only be destroyed by driving a frozen chicken through his heart on Thanksgiving Eve." So that was that was the premise. And I said, okay. And then we said, okay, well, how much money for this? And then we said, okay, I'll tell you what, the entire budget, we cannot spend over a hundred dollars the entire movie. And that was our, that was our goal. So we should, but we shot all over town. That was a time when you could just steal footage and go shoot stuff and nobody cared. You know, it's like, I mean, we used UCLA's medical center. We, uh, shot in the street with shootouts. We, uh, Oh yeah, I mean it was it was crazy the stuff that we did, you know. But uh it was fun, it's terrible, but it's but it's, it's it's got a lot of funny things and and you know, we had like one of the cantinas uh, Star Wars characters before Star Wars had it. It's in one of our scenes because Rick Baker Rick, Rick Baker made the, Rick Baker made the night turkey. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, and he's in it actually as a, in a bit part. That's awesome. How did you know yeah. Rick Baker? I knew him, uh, just, uh, through the sort of, uh, f- circle of friends that I had. He was like a young up and coming, uh, um, makeup guy and, uh, lived, uh, I think in the Valley here someplace. And, and he had made at that time, the only thing he'd done is he'd done Optoman, I think. And, uh, maybe the Bill Sachs movie, what was it called? Uh, Incredible Melting Man. I think that was the two things that he'd done at that point. So he was happy to work on Night Turkey and and so forth. So it was great fun. How do I see it? I think it's on YouTube someplace. You look up Night Turkey, I think you can find it. Yeah. I mean, Bob Burns is in it, too. And uh, he's in, like, three parts of it. He plays a gorilla and a couple other parts. And, and uh, yeah, it was... Uh, <laughs>
1: Pretty wacky. And, and Bob Short. You should do a big budget remake of Nightmare <laughs> It's What's really
0: funny is that um, uh, Jeff Rice, who wrote the original uh, novella, uh, heard about it and came over, and, uh, and we ran it for him, and he loved it. And then also one night, we, we showed it at a convention. This is when we first made it. We showed it at a convention. And somebody said, you got to turn the radio on. I said, why? He says, because uh, uh, um, who was it? It was one of the big sci-fi writers, uh, Theodore Sturgeon, or one of those guys, uh, said it was talking about Night Turkey and how great it was. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's amazing. Cool.
1: Let's talk about um, Scared to Death. So I saw that for the first time, just to, like, Vinegar Syndrome put out this, you know, kind of lavish, remastered version and i had never seen the film before so that it was what was fun to me was i was watching it and and the monster which is called a syngenor is that right
0: right right synthesized genetic organism i kept
1: trying to place i'm like is there another did is that is that a name for a monster from somewhere else is there another movie that has a a syngenor monster or something in it well we uh, actually uh, i had
0: licensed the character for another movie just called Sinjinor, which was after Scared to Death. Scared to Death was the first film. Okay. And then I was actually going to, do a se- I was going to do a sequel to it when I got offered to do Creature. So I thought, well, Creature is going to be a much bigger budget movie and, and more fun to do. So I so I, I sold the rights to a guy named Jack Murphy, and he produced a movie, which I had nothing to do with the monster, the, the movie, other than I... I leased them the moles and the characters
1: okay because I think I had seen that movie like back in the day because I kept watching it scared to death I was like why do I know this monster and it must be from that um how did the project sort of come together it was your first feature how did you get it put together well I had left Don
0: Post Studios and I thought you know I, I if you're going to be a director you got to make a movie you know and I realized that you know, at that point, nobody was gonna give me money to make a movie, you know, because I hadn't hadn't made anything other than night turkey, which was not something I was gonna show <laughs> anybody. So um so I I literally uh mortgaged the house and uh you know and was gonna start shooting, and I decided to go around and I started talking to distributors. And I found the distributor, which was they were just starting out and they needed a movie, and they said they'd put in the uh, the money to finish the film, uh, so I, I we actually started shooting, and then if, when we were actually well, actually before we started shooting, we got started casting, and uh, this the one girl uh, Tony Janata, her brother saw what we were doing and said, "I'll put some more money in." So he put in money, and then uh, 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 the guy who was the producer, his dad put in like an extra ten thousand dollars. So. So I all told we made the movie for seventy four thousand dollars, which even back in nineteen eighty, you know, was was yeah. nothing. You know, I mean, yet to put it in perspective, Halloween was made for three hundred thousand so. dollars.
1: Yeah, and didn't have monsters and stuff. It was just a guy in a suit. And we had even more.
0: We had more locations than they did too.
1: Yeah, that. Well, that one of the things I was thinking when I was watching it is like. You know, it's a pretty ambitious movie in terms of just low it's got locate, a lot of locations, practical locations and effects. And, but don't you think that's sort of, you know, I think of like my first feature and it was comparable in that way that it, that it, it it's, it, I look at it now, I'm like, I was so stupid. It's so ridiculous the amount of things I tried to do that now I'd be like, we can't do this. But do you think that's kind of the blessing of your first time directing a movie is you don't know to say, I can't do this? Yeah. I mean, I, I actually uh, have
0: been, uh, asked a number of times by st- people who are starting out, you know, what my advice to them? I'd say, I said, don't make the movie about the kids in the room all by themselves, and you know, try to save money. I said, think of it as like you're MGM, and you're going to make the biggest damn movie you've ever seen. And if you fail miserably, so what? At least you've you've tried, you know. And because I think that uh, you know, it's you can always do more than what you think you can do. You know, if you really, uh, you know, put your thinking cap on. I mean, you know, like for instance, uh, in Scared to Death, that whole scene in The Factory, uh, which has the monster getting crushed on a press, where have I seen that later? I don't know. Anyway, uh, (laughs) um, uh, when we were looking to try and find a place to to shoot that, you know, I was thinking to myself, you know, we're not going to be able to find a factory that's going to, let us shut them down, shut them down and use their factory. So we just went down to downtown LA and started knocking on doors. And we found this place that sold industrial machines. And nobody had ever walked in there and asked if they could shoot there. So the guy actually uh, who owned the place uh, rented us the place for a week for 500 bucks. And on top of that, he had all these giant machines. And he said, well, you know, if you need to move someplace, I can move them around for you. He had this giant forklift and he'd, he'd just dress up the camera. and we were great, yeah. It's amazing, you know. Well,
1: it's true because a lot of people in their first movie, I think, you know, um, get that advice of like, what, keep it to a single location, five actors, da-da-da-da-da. Like, and, and you're right. Like if right from the top you're kind of told to rein it in, you might think that way for the rest of your career. I mean, I remember on my first feature, you know, uh, yeah, the, my sort of mentor in the who was who was well established in the business in Toronto said to me, Don't listen to anyone, just try to do whatever it is you think that you want to do. Just give it a go. Because you don't have expectation on you right now. There's not some studio sitting there going, bring this in on time. Like if you can pull it off, great. And he was right. Like I think, you know, later when you when people there more money gets involved, it's different then. You have bosses and you know. But on my first movie, I didn't have to worry about any of that, and I was thinking when I was watching Scared to Death that just some of the stuff that you guys pulled off on that budget, you probably must have had a bit of that mentality. Of, Screw it, we're just going to give it a go. Well,
0: we 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 were so stupid. We didn't know what we couldn't do, and uh, you know, and and uh, I I think that was a real blessing. I mean, it really was because you know, like the whole sewer set, um, we. Somehow found this guy who ran Catalina Yachts. He he was make he built Catalina Yachts, and he had a warehouse that was empty except for a few cars that he had put in there. And he he said he that we could use the building for free, uh, to build our sets in. So we uh, built the sewer set, and the director of photography Pat Prince, who was really the hero of that piece came in, I remember on a weekend, and he built all those sets himself, by himself. You know, and uh, yeah, you know. So, we were just, we were very blessed, and we, and like I said, we just didn't, we didn't think about it. And, and then we we actually did some stuff we'd learned from Night Turkey. That <laughs> was, if you watch Night Turkey, you haven't seen it yet, there's a scene in a Kentucky Fried Chicken place, right? And it takes place at night, and it's pretty elaborate, you know. Now you go, well, wait a minute. If you're going to spend $100, how'd you get that? Well, we went there late at night with the crew and everybody, and we went to a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and we went to the guy who was behind the counter and said, hey, we'll give you 20 bucks if we can use your place for the night. And he <laughs> went, sure. <laughs> so we shot him. Yeah. So when we went to do Scared to Death, that, that scene you see in the um uh, in the rollers, where well, the guys are roller skating in in the parking structure, we did the same thing. We went to the guy who, who was the ticket taker, and we said, "Look, we'll give you a hundred bucks if we can shoot here <laughs> uh, on on a on a Sunday. Nobody, you're not open anyway." So he said, "Yeah, fine." So he showed up, opened the place up for us. We
1: shot there all day, and that was it. The creature itself has this kind of Giger esque quality to it. Were you a Giger fan at the time?
0: Yeah. Let me tell you how that happened actually is, is, um, I had been to a, uh, uh, um, sci-fi horror convention, uh, I think it was about four years earlier, three or four years earlier. And, uh, um, I was looking at some uh, books on a table and there was a book called the Necronomicon and I just picked it up and started leafing through it. And it was Giger's artwork. And I just the top of my head must have flown off because it was the coolest stuff I'd ever seen. So I bought the book and told, took it home. And I remember spending like two or three days with it laid out on the floor, just looking at the pictures and stuff. And, uh, you know, so when it came time to do the uh, syngenor, I thought, well, I really want it to have a, a Giger vibe, but I want to kind of... Giger slash creature from the black lagoon, so that's really what it is, and and you can see the sort of tropes of both things in there. So,
1: were you were kind of mindful at all of not of not sort of lifting the this, the Ridley Scott alien design?
0: Yeah, well, I, I think it was uh, different enough that it was it, yeah, that it, I, I didn't really. Yes, I mean, I, I had in some earlier designs that kind of looked a little more like that, and I thought, well, no, I'm not going to do that, so. Uh so yeah, I I tried to stay away from that. And like I said, incorporate more to the creature in, in it. So yeah.
1: I was curious when I was watching the film, um, what's the whole thing about the Ted character constantly offering people atomic rocks? <laughs> he keeps offering <laughs> that some candy or something. I was like, What is with this guy? Is that like an inside joke or
0: something? Well, you had to be of the time, okay? The, the, back in 1980, there was a candy called, uh, wasn't it called Atomic Rocks? It was called Cosmic Rocks. Pop Rocks. And Pop Rocks. It was both. And uh, yeah, yeah. And there was it, you put them in your mouth and it'd explode and stuff like that. So I thought it would yeah. be funny, you know, if uh, in scenes he's like talking and you hear the, you know, which we never actually put that in. But but uh, yeah. And I, I wanted him to be kind of like, uh, somebody who's co- could be annoying, but, he, but charming at the same time, the character. So, and I think John Stinson did a great job. I thought he was, he's very personable in it. And, you know?
1: Oh, he's, it's, it's a wacky, he's a wacky kind of, he's not a standard kind of lead for that kind of movie. He's a very different kind of character. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I saw you talking in an interview somewhere else about Rick Springfield was supposed to play the part or something.
0: Rick Springfield. Is that correct? That is correct. Rick Springfield of, of uh, uh, Jesse's Girl was supposed to be the star was, uh, of the film, and the night before we were supposed to sh- start shooting, he calls me up and says, Bill, I can't be in your movie. And I said, Rick, I'm shooting tomorrow. He said, I, I know, and I'm sorry. And I-, I- I- and I said, Rick, why can't you be in the movie? He said, well, I'd have to miss acting class. And I'm, sure, I'm like, <laughs> okay sure <laughs> so i hung up my mind's racing and i'm trying to think well who can i get and i remember it's seeing this guy who i got his number named john stinson who was at a doing in a comedy club who uh, uh was in the same comedy troupe that robin williams came out of and i thought well he he'd be really good so i called him up and he said, "Yeah, I'd love to be in your movie." So uh, I hang up the phone, and then the phone rings again, and it's Rick. And he goes, "No, no, I changed my mind. I'll be in your movie." You know, and I said, "Okay." So now I had to call John back up because you know, look, Rick was at that point had was on a soap opera. Uh, I forget what soap opera was, but it was you know Days of Our Lives or one mm-hmm. of those things. And I thought, well, this you know, it, he'd add some value to the movie and stuff. So, and, and I liked Rick. I thought he was going to be good. So, in um, any case, I hang up and, uh, and I call John back and, and tell him, you know, and he's good. I no more, hang, you know, hang that up and Rick calls back. And I, and I said, look, Rick, you're not in the movie. Don't call me <laughs> Leave back. Leave me alone. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And what's funny is that Diana Davison, who's in the movie, was Rick's girlfriend, and uh, yeah, and then John Stinson and Rick, or not John Stinson and uh, uh, and and uh, Rick's girlfriend Diana, they they fell in love during the love scene, and uh, she wound up leaving Rick for uh, for John. And I used to joke with John. and said, "Well, how does it feel
1: to have Jesse's girl?" <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really like. I didn't read a lot about what the movie was about or anything. I just the vinegar syndrome version came. And I popped it in, and um, and at the beginning, I thought it was going to be like a slasher film because it has this very slasher esque opening. Um, was that was that by design? Did you want it to kind of feel like a slasher vibe in there in the beginning? Yeah, yeah, yeah I
0: wanted it to be a surprise, you know, so people thought it was just going to be a slasher movie, and then and then it's something completely different. So, uh, you know. Uh, but the, the movie turned out to be very successful. Uh, you know, it was funny because uh, I remember getting the Variety that the week it opened, and 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 I remember calling uh, Rand Marlowe, the producer, and I go, I said, Rand, do you have any idea? You, you know that Scared to Death is on the charts. He said, uh, No, I haven't looked at the charts. I said, Do you have any idea where we are on the charts? He said, I can't imagine. I said, Number sixteen, and he went, No way. <laughs> I said, no one was more surprised than I was. You know, that's crazy. So, I mean,
1: like you made the film for how much? Did you say like seventy five thousand dollars? Yeah, seventy four thousand dollars. Yeah, all in. So, <laughs> and what kind of money did did it bring in? Do you remember?
0: I, I don't. I think it re- returned to us about three hundred thousand nice. dollars, something like that. So it was, you know, which uh, was very respectable. I mean, the fact that we actually got our money back and then made some money. So it yeah, was, that's it was great.
1: Good. You know, when, when you think of your first feature, there's usually these things that stand to you as lessons that you learn on your first movie. Is there a particular thing you learned on that film that sort of has stayed with you throughout your career?
0: Uh, yeah, don't, don't undersell what you can do, I guess, is, is what came out of that. Is, is uh, you know, I think the idea of actually just going out and trying for, you know, uh, trying for the, the, as much as you can do. Yeah. Don't limit yourself. Yeah, don't limit yourself. Don't don't go make the movie that's uh, five people's in a, people in a room.
1: <laughs> yeah, unless it's the thing. Are you a fan? I am a fan. I like the thing a
0: lot. I think it's a really a good movie. You know, I think it's uh, uh I think that and Halloween are Carpenter's best movies.
1: Had you seen uh, Halloween when you made Scared to Death?
0: I had actually. Uh, you know, I one of my weirder claims to fame is I sculpted the original mask that was. Uh, michael myers you know the oh, cool. William shatner mask that's awesome and um uh, yeah and uh so you know we I, I actually remember them coming into don post studios and saying can you take one of the captain kirk masks and paint it white and spray the hair black and i said i said well you know if he's doing that it's just, yeah, we should go see what movie he's making so uh i when we heard it was halloween we uh, bob short and i uh went down there and uh and and watched it and you know and the first i remember the, watching it for the first time and remembering i turned to bob and uh and it was right after the first sequence i said this guy knows what he's doing you know we because it was on a double bill with a movie called uh, toolbox murders you know and i said uh and that was that wasn't particularly good and i said but this guy knows what he's doing
1: yeah it's i remember the first time i saw that movie too i was like uh because I I saw the weirdest reason I saw was because I was a huge Donald Pleasance fan. He was my favorite actor at the time. Still is, I guess. And, uh, and I remember watching Halloween for Donald Pleasance and then being like, Oh, this is so scary. It was, uh, I, I I became a big fan of it from that point. And John, I love John Carpenter; He's great. Uh, I worked with Dean Cundy who shot that movie on a film a few years back and that was a real treat.
0: Oh, great. Yeah. It's great when you can work with the people that you admire, you know, and, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, it was a big uh, treat for me to work with, uh, you know, with Jeff Combs and, and, of course, David Warner and so forth on the on, uh, perversions of science. But, uh, yeah, it's great. And of course, you know, I had a great cast in House on Haunted Hill.
1: One of the things I always ask directors is because uh, it's interesting to me to hear directors different takes on this is what what crew member, like what position on a, on a film crew do you think is the most underappreciated job on a set?
0: Gosh, that's—I would say probably the assistant director, because the assistant director is getting pushed from every possible way. The director wants more time and and things to you know his things that he, to, to make the film better, and then the producers are attacking the assistant director, saying, "Why isn't this guy moving faster? Listen, we need you know that's all that." So he's he's a very under underrated character you know and uh uh so uh yeah <laughs> not a good job
1: on my first few films i i had you know not particularly skilled 80s but then I, a few years later i got to work with a really good ID. it was actually stuart Gordon's AD. Uh, i came on a film i did it Scott Stenichel, and i all and i realized i was like oh my god this is the really important job the things just went so much better with him on the
0: show the only thing I would say is I had I never thought assistant directors should be called assistant directors. I think they're more assistant producers, really, than directors, uh, you know, because of the type of work that they do. But but in any case, I, I think they do. An, uh, uh, they're a great help. Um, and um, it's very hard to find the good ones, uh, you know, because uh, it's it's a tricky position to, like, not antagonize everyone and yet still move things along. And that that's a very difficult balancing act. Um, another, uh, position that I think is very uh, tricky and I, I've, I've had very few good ones is the, uh, continuity supervisor, you know, uh, you know, the person who's the, you know, doing the script stuff, because, uh, that again, I've had a lot of them are just like, they're talking, you know, I'm on the set and they're talking to my, to me about things that are coming up like in four days or something. I to go, no, no, I want to know what's going on right now, you know, <laughs> focus on what we're doing right now. And it's like, and that's, that's always, they can, they can be very aggravating if they're not good.
1: <laughs> I also find that's one of the jobs that is like the first on, uh, you know, line items to get X on a budget when you when you're tight on money is they go, well, we can do without the script supervisor. I'm always like, no, 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 we can't. <laughs> we can script supervisor. Like, Because, you know, you know this, when continuity is wrong, people always notice, they do. It it can wreck the illusion of of what you're trying to do. Well, I guess for people who are listening who don't know, can you kind of explain what a script supervisor's tasks are?
0: Yeah, well, uh, uh, script supervisor's uh, a very important part, and it's it's something you don't think of very much about, but uh, he or she has a, a copy of the script in front of them, and they make notes as you go as to, where the actors' hands were in a particular shot, and uh, what clothes they're wearing, and basically all the things that have to do with continuity, so that it's it's uh, uh, that it all matches. And they really have to keep it in their head as much as in the uh, uh, writing it down. They also number takes as being that this you know when you say this is this is a uh, 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 print that take, which they don't print anymore, but they. You know, that's to make sure that the uh, editor knows that this is the good take. And they also make note of things like uh, lens, you know, what lens was on the camera, what the f-stop was, what the, uh, 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 what millimeter lens was used, how high the camera was up off the floor. I mean, just a lot of detail stuff. It's very detailed oriented thing. And it's, and you have to have somebody who's really good that can focus in on all these things at once. It's, it's a. Tricky. The the best script script supervisor I ever worked with was a uh, a, a woman named um, Mary Seward, who has worked on uh, on uh, several of my shows, and and uh, you know I try and get her whenever I can.
1: Let's talk about uh, Creature, which you did in 1985. Um, How did Creature come together?
0: Creature came together because I was uh, you know it had been a number of years since I had made a film, and I had met this guy named Bill Dunn, who was Kind of a wannabe producer, and he he was very good at the gift of gab. So he was going around, and he uh hooked up with a guy named Moshe Diamant, who was also a producer who wanted to get things going. And he had access to money from Israel. I think I, I never knew how he, he made a lot of movies, and he didn't make a lot of money. But <laughs> I was wondering if he was, maybe he was laundering money. I don't know, but anyway, no, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Moshe was a great guy. And, and uh, uh, in any case, Moshe um, uh, had a uh, burgeoning company. And uh, they he'd seen Scared to Death and liked it a lot and said, Can you make me a movie like that? And uh, and I said, Well, I, I, I will, but I'd like to make it in space. I don't really want to do another Earthbound movie. I said, Really, I like science fiction. I'd like to do a space picture. And so he said, Well, if you can give me something like Alien then uh, we can do that. So uh, he went out and raised the money. And uh, um, yeah, we started making it. And uh, a few hiccups along the way. We started out, he told us that we had less money than we actually had, which was kind of a big mistake. You should never tell a production they have less money. I know, I know why he did it, because he's trying to save money. But uh, I always felt like we could have done 10 times more with what we'd had, had we known it from the get-go. Uh, But in any case, we had some really good people on that. We had uh, Bob and Dennis Skotek, who later won the Academy Award for Aliens. In fact, they got Aliens off of this, off of Creature, because Jim Cameron came to see Creature and said, yeah, let's get these guys. And he had worked with them before, I think, at Carmen, so he he really liked what he saw. Anyway, uh, but yeah, we had uh, uh, those guys, and we had a lot of, uh, really good effects people and so forth working on the show. So we I I think managed to put a lot more on the screen than what the budget we had. Again, it was uh, overstretching what we, you know, initially had. The film uh we actually was made for seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Well, Moshe was out selling the movie as a five to six million dollar movie and nobody bought. Nobody said, Oh well it doesn't look like that. So so uh, he did very well with it. And the movie was a huge success. I mean, it made a lot of money. The
1: film has sort of a, a you know, a, I don't want to say a reputation, but it did. You see certain descriptions where they say, oh, you know, it's an alien homage or knockoff or
0: a ripoff is usually what the, <laughs> yeah, it's usually listed, it's usually listed the alien ripoff. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, that's what they wanted. That's what Moshe wanted. And, uh, you know, at that time I was happy to make anything, you know, so. Were you a fan of
1: the, yeah. the Ridley Scott film?
0: Oh yeah. I, I love, I love, I think Alien is a masterpiece and, uh, you know, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't too hard to do. I mean, I, uh, was a huge fan of, of Ridley's work. I mean, I, I'd, I'd seen, uh, uh, the movie made before that, which was the Duelist, which was a great film. And, and then when I saw Alien, I thought this is just a masterpiece. And, uh, uh, yeah, I was I was very taken with it. So.
1: Tell me a bit about the cast. It's a fun cast in the movie. I enjoyed the, the, all the different characters and the actors playing
2: them.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the casting session, we put out just a casting call. And, and so most of the people were cast off the casting call. Um, and I, yeah, I really liked you know, Stan Ivar's got a good, solid character. And what's interesting is nowadays he actually has gone on and he's now a ship's captain. He's like a on a, one of those big, you know, anchors now he's <laughs> so, uh but he was a ship captain. yeah so he so it's it's life imitating art um you know but we had a really good cast and and marie loren was wonderful and and uh uh you know just all the, all the cast members um you know, and uh annette mccarthy who was great and uh, i remember annette M- mccarthy coming on the set and she was so pretty she still is beautiful And I remember I I kept sending her back to makeup. I said, you can't have her be this pretty. You cannot have somebody that pretty in the movie. (laughs) So uh, she
1: she was great. And, um, you know, and of course then. Who's the actress? The the great big tall actress. uh, What was her name? Uh, Salinger, I want to say. Yeah, Diane Salinger. She was great. And I remember actually,
0: because we were trying to find somebody to play that part. She had to be sort of formidable. And uh, a lot of actresses had come in. And I remember I was driving in the parking lot for the casting session. And I remember seeing Diane walking up the, the steps. I went, she's got to be here for Creature, you know. And uh, she came in and I said she was great and uh, really got it. That was her first uh, film acting job. She'd been doing stage work. And Diane was great in the sense that she, she had no idea what film acting was like. And so there was one scene when she we were first filming and she did her thing and walked right off the set, you know, as though, 20, you know, and I said, Diane, I, I, if you go off the set, I can't, the camera can't follow you. <laughs> but she, she did it. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, but she was wonderful. And and after she sort of settled into what was going on, she, she I delivered the goods and it was great. Now, obviously the, the, the elephant in the room is Klaus Kinski. Now, Klaus...
1: I wasn't going to ask you about that, I swear. That's okay.
0: I know everyone <laughs> thought let <that>, will <laughs> talk about Klaus. Klaus, uh, I... Moshe hired Klaus without me knowing it. And uh, told me like two weeks before we we're supposed to start shooting that Klaus Kinski's in the movie. And I had heard that he was crazy. And I said, I told Moshe, I said, there's no part for Klaus in this movie. He said, Bill write one for him. You know, I said, okay. So, you know, so I wrote a, a crazy person and of course he shows up and he's like 10 times crazier than the part I wrote. And, uh, yeah, he was, he was just, uh, a, a nightmare, I guess would be, that would be being that That's giving nightmares a bad reputation.
1: <laughs> he's very weird, even in the character. Like he just seems like he's on in some outer space. Like he's, well, he's
0: detached. He was detached in real life. I mean, uh, you know, but look, I'll, I'll tell you this, this sums up Klaus. We, during production, we had a dinner, uh, a luncheon on the weekend at Ma Maison. Ma Maison was a, uh, a very shishi restaurant in Beverly Hills. And, um, so, you know, some of the cast members were there and Moshe was there and, and, uh, and uh, some of the other, and Bill Dunn and stuff. And Klaus showed up with this girl that if, I, I'd say if she was 15, I'd be surprised. And she got up to go to the restroom and I turned to Klaus. I said, Klaus, where did you get her? And he goes, oh, I hang around the school yachts. And I went, oh, no. So that, that was Klaus, yeah. I mean, today he'd be in jail, but you know.
1: <laughs> he's one of those people, I mean, he's obviously sort of iconic, in cinema for some of his performance stuff with Werner Herzog and you know and I know that there's another filmmaker uh uh David Schmoller who did this video called Crawl Space with him and and said that he almost considered never directing again after making that movie he said it was just the most horrible insane thing did you did, did you sort of because you knew you knew Klaus by reputation stuff did you kind of think okay I need to kind of prepare for working with this guy in a different way than I would usually prepare for working with an actor.
0: Well, I honestly, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, you know, uh, and then like by the end of day one, I realized that this is going to be a nightmare because he wanted to have an argument between every take by Tuesday. I'd called his agent and asked him to come out and ride roughshod on him. And he, the agent came out on Wednesday and could not do anything with Klaus. He was like, he was just a maniac, and, I, and you know, he. First of all, the stuff that came out of his mouth would embarrass a sailor. He was grabbing all the women. He, you know, we had to like, you know, it was just terrible. And then uh, I remember by Thursday, I said, "Okay, I, you've got to do something." So Thursday of that of that week, I remember I winked at the cameraman. I don't yell because that's not my style. I turned at the camera, I turned around to Klaus, and I just started screaming at him and told him he was going to hit his marks and he was going to behave and he was going to do what I tell him, you know, or I'll go over to B&B <laughs> and pick up some guns. <laughs> I, said, I said, you are going to behave. And uh, he was a pussycat for the next uh, two days, you know. And, uh, you know. How many days was he on set for? Yeah, I, I had him for a week. And so, by by, he actually had more stuff to do. But I said, "Look, we'll get a stunt man." That's why in the movie you'll see when he has the makeup on. There's only maybe one or two shots of Klaus with the actual makeup on. The rest of us are clearly a stunt man. And the, the reason is we just, we couldn't handle Klaus anymore, you know, of course Klaus was furious that so we
1: hired a stunt man to do that stuff. I said, oh, I'm not going to deal with you. Did he actually have any like? care about his performance at all like was he did he did he want to do a good job oh yeah no i think he always gave his best performance but he yeah he didn't
0: he never like i never felt like he was like just uh phoning it in but he would just make your life miserable i mean uh, he would like deliver lines to the corner of the set you know and you go klaus you know if you don't turn this way the camera can't actually see you (laughs) you know i mean it was just yeah he was a Anything bad you've heard of uh, about him? He's ten. Ta- he was ten times worse than that.
1: So yeah. it's an interesting thing to me because you know you hear different stories about people having a difficult actor on a set or whatever. Um, you know, and I'm going to assume because you had the great difficult actor of cinema history on your set that that was probably your worst working experience with an actor. But but well, when you encounter an actor on a production that that's difficult or that's challenging, like you, what's your sort of approach when dealing with a situation like that?
0: Well, first of all, you know, walking out a creature. I mean, what came out of that was, you know, nobody can harm me now. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good to go. So after that, you know, any troublesome actor, I would just uh, uh, troublesome actors come in a bunch of different varieties, and, and most of the time, it's because they're insecure, and uh, if. That's not the case with Klaus. Klaus was just a maniac, but most of them are, are insecure. And as long as you talk to them and 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 they know that you're in charge and that you are going to look out for their best interest, which you have to anyway, because it's for the good of the film anyway. So as long as you're doing that, they 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 mostly uh, you know are, are okay, you know. And I, I never had anybody after Klaus that was as bad, and anybody who was. And it was even close. I just it wasn't a problem.
1: One of the things I was noticing watching the movie was there's a character, and a few times it's throughout the film, reading a scared to death paperback novel. Is that a real book?
0: No, no. It was just something I uh, I had the prop department make up just as a, g- a gaff, you know. So so now that the this, this scared death has actually come out in paperback, it's sort of again life imitating art. <laughs>
1: Oh, it did. It, it has come out as a paperback? Yeah.
0: As we speak, it's out, actually.
1: Interesting, because your first two pictures are kind of monster on the loose movies. But a lot of your subsequent films have not been that that kind of genre. Have you have you, any kind of had any inkling of returning to the, the monster on the loose genre and in, in future films?
0: Yeah, I, I think that maybe the reason that I didn't do that is just because I don't know that monster movies really work so much anymore. I don't know. It's a... Uh certainly a monster in space movie could work because it, 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 it makes sense, you know, that you could have some alien life that would be. But, but I don't know. I don't know. If, uh, uh, you know, I like monster movies. And also, I think a lot of the mon- great monsters have already
1: been done. So I don't know. What are some of your personal favorite monster movies other than Creature?
0: Uh, well, obviously, yeah, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, I think Alien is obviously a great monster movie um yeah i mean uh i like a lot of the kind of goofy ones just because i the, from the 50s just for nostalgia purposes you know like i like a, I like a lot of the paul blaisdell stuff you know the, the uh it conquered the world and you know uh, she creature and stuff like that but you know i mean I, I like the classic monsters I like the universal stuff a lot i mean the, you know, the mummy the original mummy and the uh, Frankenstein monster and, and so forth. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I don't know if, if, if you asked me that when I was younger, it probably would have been, been different. I mean, my tastes in the, in movies have changed, you know, to my, to my mind, you know, some of my favorite movies now are some, you know, more obscure movies, you know, like, uh, the Black Cat with Boris Karloff and Bela Dosi and, you know, and, uh, I just watched um The Man Who Laughs, the silent film. It's so good. It was so good.
1: I haven't seen it. I've heard I've heard it's amazing. I have to see it. It it
0: is amazing. And and you after you watch that, you'll realize that Conrad fight was probably the greatest actor who ever walked the planet. His performance in that is so amazing.
1: A friend of mine just a few years ago um like heavily pushed me to see the movie M. hmm It's a it's, I mean, not a monster movie, but it's, it's still a scary movie. It's yeah. brilliant.
0: Yeah, no, it is brilliant. Yeah, it's great. And also the um, Peter Laurie and like uh, 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 Mad Love is great. I don't know if you've seen that.
1: Yeah, I. it's funny. Yeah. I, I. Peter Lorre is one of those actors to me. It's like, I don't know. He's like Christopher Walken. They're just these actors where it's like, there's no one else like them. There never will be anyone like them again. That's that. <laughs> like Peter Laurie fits that bill. <laughs>
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny. It seems like there were more character actors back then, you know, who had faces. It seems like to to me, when I I see most of the actors now, you know, other than a handful, they're, they're, they mostly kind of all seem the same to me. It's kind of like you went and got your next door neighbor to be the star of the movie, you know, which maybe is what they're going for. I don't know, but you don't see like the, the, the faces like Humphrey Bogart and Jimmy Cagney and, you know, and, uh yeah you know, all those you know character actors that you had uh, i say characters and they were characters just because they had un- something unusual about them and jack nicholson i think is the last great you know actor like that
1: we had um the director lewis teague was on the show a little while ago and he was talking about that he said you know i feel like everybody is just kind of Good looking now, and all those great faces are. There's just less and less of them. Do you think there's truth to that? Do you think it's like you know that, that it's more about people being attractive now than it is about finding these interesting great faces? I mean, there's still guys like Steve Buscemi who have interesting faces going around, but yeah,
0: Steve Buscemi maybe is
1: is like a modern day you know uh, character actor
0: like that, you know. But uh, you know, there's- Chris Walken, yeah, Christopher Walken, yeah, who started out as sort of the handsome leading guy, you know. Uh, I, I saw an interview with Christopher Walken, and apparently <laughs> Saturday Night Live has ruined his life.
1: <laughs> well, I think it's a bummer, because, like, I remember uh, watching The Dead Zone recently, the Cronenberg film, um, and uh, thinking, you know, what a great dramatic actor Chris Walken is. He's really an excellent actor, and it's sort of a shame that, that people see yeah. him as this, you know, kind of shticky thing now that they kind of box him into.
0: No, he's he's great. He's uh, really one of our best actors he really is. So yeah. no I, I agree with you and that's I think one of Cronenberg's best movies which doesn't get a lot of as much love as it should. I no,
1: think. it's vastly underrated because everybody talks about The Fly of course and Videodrome and these great movies but I think uh just in terms of emotional weight I I always th- said The Dead Zone has this wonderful atmospheric haunting feeling to it and it's quite a touching movie. It's it's a kind of a a sad, tragic story yeah I, I think
0: yeah, I agree with you. I think it's one and one of the best uh adaptations of a Stephen King novel ever
1: did you read the book?
0: I did not, I did not, but i but just in terms of you know most of the Stephen King movies, I think fail uh for various reasons, mostly because I think the he has too many characters in them to to follow, you know, and I think that. The the strongest movies work with smaller casts,
1: like Misery, where you had two people.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: watching you know th- this Vinegar Syndrome, these lavish remasters they've done of your two early films, you know, with they're filled with special features, uh, you know, with these cool like slip covers and all this stuff. Did you ever think these early films of yours would get these these you know fancy editions?
0: No, no, actually, I. I thought they'd be long forgotten, actually. So I'm actually surprised because there's a lot of interest in Scared to Death now. And it's like, it, it, it sort of is a mystery to me. <laughs> you know?
1: Are you pleased with them? Or do you kind of look back at them and go, "Ah, oh, what was I doing? Like, how do you feel about when you see them?
0: Well, look, Scared to Death is not a great movie. You know, that's, that's you know, look, I know, you know. But it, it actually, having seen it more recently, I actually hadn't looked at it for years and years. And uh, when, when we were doing the restoration, I actually looked at it again. And, you know, it's got some fun things in it. And I think that what's, what's good about it is the, the actors bring a kind of charm to the movie, I think, that, that, that it wouldn't have otherwise. And uh, John Stinson and his relationship with Diana and, you know, and just all the, and, and uh, you know, uh, David Moses, who is, does a great job. I think that's really what makes it. The monster footage stuff, I think, works pretty well, you know, for for what it was, not having any money. And, you know, uh, I think the ending, uh, one of my, actually, I was thinking about today, the, my favorite uh, sequence in there is really where they're uh, down, they find the pods in the, you know, down in the sewer. And uh, John is shooting the pods and they're squealing and stuff. And then Tony, Tony Jannat turns around and the monster's right there. And that's that's a good Jump scare, I think, which works pretty well. So,
1: what about Creature? Do you like revisiting that one? Um, you know, it, it, it's fun, it's a fun movie, you know, it is it is what it is, and it,
0: it's it was you know designed to be you know to take advantage of the success of Alien and stuff like that. So, you know, I would have been rather I would have been happier making something more original, but but look, it's it's uh it's fun, and you know, I think the uh production value is pretty good considering the, uh, the
1: amount of money we had. So, so you did tales from the crypt episode in 94 called only skin deep. And, uh, were you a fan of the, of the series and of the, and, and, and of the comics?
0: Uh, I wasn't such a fan of the comics, but I was a fan of the series. I, uh, liked the series a lot. And, um, you know, it, it was a great pleasure to be asked to do one of the episodes. And, uh, um, I remember by that time I'd actually been out of work for a while and they sent me the script. And I remember reading the script. Tears came to my eyes when I read the script and because it was just so much the right script for me to be making. And I thought I know exactly how to make this movie. You know, I know this is exactly what I should be making. And when I got to the set, um, I had uh, an honor, an extra blessing in that the show had been running for, that was like the sixth season when I came on. So it was like a well-oiled machine. And the producers at that point, you know, had pretty much just, you know, given up on the show in terms of like, they they weren't so hands-on as they would have been in the first few uh, seasons. So they pretty much left us alone to do whatever we wanted to do. So it was great to be able to just come in there and uh, you know, and and some of the things I did was like, uh, I knew that one of their things that they liked to do was a big budget show. They wanted to like show off and uh, uh, make the show as, as, you know, know, heavily laden with uh, just stuff, you know, uh, uh, you know, great sets and so forth. And I, my show, I didn't see it that way. I thought. I really want this to be like uh, you know that the set is doesn't have much going on in it so I, I, I uh, uh, what I did is I got together with the art director and I said let's put up put together some sets that would cost them a fortune let's just do some drawings that would just be so expensive that it would just that's just out of the question which is what he did so we went in we turned the sets in and th- th- those sets were I had I designed the idea of it was going to take place in the attic of the Chrysler building, you know, and it was just going to be like this just crazy deco thing with all kinds of filigree and stuff, knowing full well that they were never going to make it. And of course, we turned it in. I get a a, a note from the producers like, you got to come down to our office right away. We got to talk about this set. <laughs> so I get in there and they <laughs> and they, they go on. Okay, now look, we just can't spend this kind of money. I said, I said, okay, well, I'll tell you what, that's that's a uh, really tragic, but, you know, I do have an alternate idea. And if you just let me run with it, uh, it's going to save you a ton of money. And they said, Oh, okay, go do that. <laughs> you know, so, so I remember, I, I remember I said, okay, I don't want any windows. I said, I want the lighting. I just want you to knock holes in the wall and put like lath and plaster. And I said, uh, and we'll put lights outside that move and stuff. And, and, um, uh, and then I remember the set people, the set dressers were so used to like bringing in tons of stuff and I'd keep going, no, take it out, take it out, take it out. And we got down to where it was fairly barren. And I said, yeah, that's perfect. Now I, but, but I said, will you want one thing? And this is, I, I've asked for this on every movie I've ever done. I said, I want ceiling pieces. I want you to put in a full ceiling so that I can shoot low angles. And uh, that was the only expensive thing. And, and because I had saved them so much money, they said, okay, yeah, fine. So, uh, because I really believe that uh, the best sets are the ones that you when you're in there, you feel like you're in a real environment, which is the way House
1: on Haunted Hill was, too. Do you have a preference to location shooting or, or shooting on set? I like both for different reasons. I mean, yeah.
0: Uh, on the, In a studio, you have control. Uh, and... You know, the sound is going to be better and the, all of that's good. And, you know, air conditioning, all the rest of that stuff. Um, but it's more, it's more difficult to create a real environment, I think, that, that seems real. Uh, we certainly had a really good art department on House on Haunted Hill. And they, I thought, did a remarkably good job that when you go down to the basement set in House on Haunted Hill, that was a complete set that you, if you walked in there, you'd swear you were really in the real place. Cause it had complete ceilings. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of times you have to fight the DP cause the DPs always want to like, Oh, no, we'll stick a light over the top. I said, I, and I always go to him and said, look, what would you do if this was a real set? You know, if this was, we were on location, well, how would you shoot it? Well, that's how we're going to shoot it. You know? So, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, uh, I, I think they both have their advantages.
1: The, the mask in your episode was really great. It's a similar aesthetic to sort of a look that we see later in some of your work. Um, how did you guys sort of decide on the design for the for the mask?
0: Well, actually, I did a whole bunch of different sketches for it. And then um, one of the things I did is I got a... I, I thought of the character. I said, what is she like? I thought, well, she's kind of like a broken doll. So I actually got a a, a book on the history of dolls. And I found a photograph of a doll from like 1750 and it was fairly close to looking like the character in the, in the show. And I thought, well, that is a great look. I said, let's, let's go with that. Had a little bit more of a nose. I took the nose down a little bit and made her a little more broken looking, but yeah, uh, that was the, that was uh, how I came up with that. And I actually wound up doing the sculpture myself because the, I, I really felt it was like, a lot of times it's easier to do it yourself than try to explain to
1: somebody what you want. Especially because you know? of your time at Dom Post, you probably knew how to do it. You were like, I can make the mask.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it certainly came in handy. <laughs>
1: um, I noticed too in, the, in in your episode, there's this almost kind of noirish style to the look of your episode. And, and I think that a lot of your work has a decidedly specific feel that, that you know, when I see one of your films, I can kind of say, you know, and I think like a lot of great filmmakers, you know, when, you, when I watch a movie that you've done, I go, oh, this is a Bill Malone movie. It feels like one. What are some of your influences as a filmmaker in terms of aesthetic and style uh, when you approach your work?
0: Well, you know, I, I've been sort of influenced by a lot of people. I mean, um, you know, I have friends who've done stuff. I mean, there's a, a, a great guy named Tom, uh, Tom Koontz, who makes automatons and he makes these little sets and so forth. And his stuff is amazing. And then... Um, you know, I'm a great fan of film noir and also uh, uh, German expressionism. You know, uh, uh, films like *Cabin Doctor Caligari* and and uh, uh, F.W. Mornau. To my mind, Mornau was the greatest director who ever walked the planet. And the reason I say that is because if you look at his films, he was so uh, just artistic, and, and his stuff is so beautiful. And he didn't have anybody to pull from. I mean. You know, people will talk about Hitchcock and stuff like. Oh, well, Hitchcock was a great director, no question, but he had a backlog of people to look at. Whereas F.W. Mornow, he was what in the beginning there, he was making the stuff up as he went, and his stuff is 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 so amazing.
1: And over time, you know, as you as you as you're you know, work as is, is you've made more and more films and, and one can go back and look at more of your work and kind of see certain connective tissues. I mean, everything is different, of course, and appropriate to the script you're doing, but I do think there's, you know, aesthetic or visual similarities in some of your work that feels now to me like sort of a, a signature of yours. Is that something that you're mindful of or does it just end up in it because it's your work? Actually, I ask myself all the time,
0: why do my movies look like that? <laughs> 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 it's true i i i don't i'm not actively out trying to do anything it's just it's, i guess it's just my point of view i guess you know and it it just you can't help it just, you know i think every filmmaker if you want to know who a filmmaker is just look at their movies you can tell you know, it's a very revealing and, and some kind of embarrassing time sometimes
1: <laughs> um house on haunted hill which you did in 99 uh and i love the movie i i've always loved it. I remember seeing the theater and having a great time with it. I think you totally captured the feeling of the, the era of films that you know, that it's supposed to. So, um, you know, I, am excited to talk to you about it. How did you, how did you get involved in the film? Well, you know, I'd
0: of course done, uh, the tales from the crypt episode that you mentioned. And I did a couple more TV shows for, uh, the same producers, Joel Silver and, uh, uh Bob Zemeckis and those guys. And, um, I had, uh, one day I'd gotten a call from Joel saying that he had uh, acquired the rights to the uh, William Castle catalog, and that they were thinking about doing a remake of House on Haunted Hill. And I said, Joel, I said, I think it's a perfect movie to, to remake. I said, I've been thinking that ghosts are going to come back hot and heavy. Uh, I have a reason for that, by the way, which is that, that the the uh, baby boomers are getting older and they're all thinking about dying. So you know, it's a <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a natural by the way invest in cemeteries <laughs> but in any case no i i had wanted to make a ghost film for a long time and that was like just you know that was just amazing that i got that call And i said yeah let's let's go do it so uh then they asked me who would write the script and i said well you could get dick Beebe, who wrote the my first crypt episode i said you know we all like that pretty much so uh dick went off to write it and he had six months to write it and he i'm pretty sure he wrote all of it within the last 24 hours before the deadline because it was just not good and dick was a great guy but he had a little problem with the uh, tubes you know drinking the you know and uh, uh, and the studio was going to cancel the project and uh and I, I went to him, I said, no, love, listen, just let me have, uh, let me have uh, two weeks with Dick and let me come back with something. So uh, I got Dick and I said, let's go and watch the original House on Haunted Hill and let's write down everything we like about it. I said, it's a great movie. Bill Castle was a great filmmaker. I said, let's, let's see what we like. So we jotted down all the story points and everything and the things that we liked the original. I said, let's do that. And now let's say, what would we have liked to have seen when we were 12 years old? You know, what would be, I said, well, there's no real ghosts in it. Let's put some real ghosts in the movie. So, uh, so that's what we did. And the way it worked out is that Dick wrote most of the, uh, inter- the character interchanges. And I wrote uh, nearly all of the scary stuff. You know, and, uh, I came up with the whole thing with the park, the amusement park and all that stuff. And, and, but Dick, Dick wrote a lot of the other stuff, the confrontation, uh, you know, down with the electric when the, uh, uh, um, because getting electrocuted and stuff like that, he wrote all the stuff and, and wrote some great dialogue. And I thought, so, uh, that's how it worked. And, um, uh, we, it was really a 50-50 thing. I didn't get credit on the film, but that was only because of the uh, of a deal that I'd made with the studio. So, you know.
1: The whole Dark Castle entertainment concept, like, were you sort of brought in early on with, with that conceptually by Zemeckis and and Silver? Or, or did they already sort of put that into play and then just say, okay, we want you to come on and do this one film for us? What was your involvement with Dark Castle? Well, this was to be the first Dark Castle film. And they, like I say, they had, I, you know,
0: I had sort of been in the in the loop with those guys because I had continued to make stuff with them. I, like I said, I did three or two Crypt episodes and a Perversions of Science. And then I did a, a made for TV movie for them. And it was right after that, that they had gotten the rights to the Terry Castle or the William Castle stuff through Terry Castle. And uh, so I was well aware of what they were doing and stuff. And, and uh, so I was sort of in there from the beginning. And I knew what they wanted to do and they wanted this to be like their, their uh, premier William Castle film, you know? So that's, that's how, that's how once we turned in our screenplay, the studio said, yeah, let's go make this. So that's how it happened.
1: What was your working relationship like with with Joel Silver and and Robert Zemeckis? Did you work with them? Were they fairly hands-on or did they just kind of let you do your thing?
0: Um, Bob Zemeckis is, is a wonderful guy and he, he's one of my, favorite people. He, uh, uh, didn't have a lot to do with the film because he, uh, he would come in and, and, you know, give us little notes every now and then he was off making his own stuff. And Joel, uh, sort of in the pre-production stage was more hands on, but once we actually started shooting, then, then it was pretty much, you know, it was pretty much free to shoot it as I liked.
1: The opening title is great that the whole t- opening title sequence and is it stop motion? Is that how it was done? Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I wanted uh, something like that. Uh, I'm a fan of the you
0: know, brothers Quay and stuff like that. And I, I wanted something that would, you know, I, and, and a lot of other animation. I like animation a lot and uh, stop motion. I was Harry Harryhausen fan. I thought let's find somebody who can do that. And, and uh, uh, we found a company in Hollywood that, really latched on to the idea and, uh, and did that. And I thought the score was also very good. I thought uh, Don Davis's score captured what it was. And one of the things, I, about, I want to say something about the score. One of the things I wanted to do was, uh, and I did get some resistance, but I, uh, I wanted to put pipe organ in, in the movie. And, and I said, look, here's the story. Pipe organ is a cliche. I get it. But it's such. A, it's been such a cliche for so long. Think about it. When was the last time you heard anybody put Pipe Organ in the horror film? You haven't heard it in it's Never. 50 yeah, years. Forever. Forever. I said, now's the yeah. time to bring it back. So uh, that's how the, <laughs> the Pipe
1: Organ stuff wound up, which I was happy with any of has Oh, nice it's great. Thing.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's excellent. Especially because the movie already is sort of a throwback, right? So it just yeah. suits it. Yeah. <laughs> um. And the cast is amazing. I mean, what a great cast you have on this film! Can you tell me a bit about the the casting process on the project?
0: Well, you know, uh, when you do a major studio picture, the studio has a lot of this say about who's the cast is, and sort of a lot of those people were brought in from the studio, which I was happy about. I mean, um, my original cast ideas were somewhat different. I mean, it would have been a somewhat different movie. My, uh, uh, you know, both of uh, both the studio and myself wanted Jeffrey Rush. So that was a no brainer. So, you know, he was on the top of my list and apparently on top of their list as well. So, so that was wonderful that we got Jeffrey to be in it. Um, you know, and, and the other cast, like I said, we were pretty much uh, studio uh, people, the studio wanted, but I was happy with everybody. My original cast, uh, I think instead of um, Chris Catan, yeah, I was uh, going for John Hurt, which was a, would have been a completely different movie, you know. And it was his character was going to be much more serious. The movie actually started out to be a much more serious quote serious, is a terrible word but uh, film. Uh, but you know, we started getting uh, I I started getting uh, pages from the writers of Friends, and I went, I don't think this is going to be that serious. <laughs> And it became very clear that what they wanted was actually Evan Costello meet and me, Frankenstein. I said, "Okay, I can do that." You know, so so that was my approach to it: is is make the funny things funny and the scary stuff scary.
1: So, it, did Jeffrey Rush kind of get the tone of this right away? Like, was did you guys talk about that early on?
0: Jeffrey Rush, I, I love Jeffrey Rush. He was great. Now, what happened was, I the first time I met him was over at the. Uh, uh, Joel Silver's house, which was one of the old Frank Lloyd Wright houses, and uh, Jeffrey, uh, when I met him, uh, one of, some of the first words out of his mouth, so he says, "Well, I went to uh, the New Art Theater last night and I watched the Black Cat and Boris Karloff." I said, "You are my man," <laughs> and I said, "I said Jeffrey, uh, okay, no, you know, not putting my movie down at all, but you're getting Academy Awards now, you're." going to Academy Award dinners for uh, Elizabeth. And uh, I said, why would you, or Shakespeare? And I said, why would you want to be in House on Haunted Hill? And he goes, well, I'm tired of playing men in tights. I want to be an action hero. I said, you're my man. (laughs) So no, he and he took it very seriously. Uh, You know, when we were shooting, I'd look over in the corner and he'd he'd be in the corner uh just uh working rehearsing and stuff he took it very seriously, so he he was great and had a lot of good suggestions and so forth and worked with with some of the act other actors and they worked uh things uh, you know together and so forth it was great and you know another thing I'll tell you uh one of the things that in the movie you'll see there's a sequence underwater you know where we wrap his head with rubber, throw him in a thing, and you know and I'm thinking to myself when we we're making this like, I've got an Academy Award nominee, Academy Award winner, because I like he won for for the, the piano movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and I, I said, uh, "What is he going to think of this?" You know, and he was totally good with it. You know, he was totally good. You know, we wrapped him in rubber, threw him in his tank. We shot a sequence uh, underwater in the tank at in, down in Florida. At, uh, and uh, another good thing for me by, by when we were shooting that scene underwater where they they throw him under in the tank is uh i look over as a safety diver and i i said i said uh because i'm in the pool with everybody else all you know in, in our swimsuits and i said i said uh, what's your name he said rick i said well rick what rick browning rick browning we're in florida rick browning dad you're not related to rico browning are you I said yeah he's my dad i went oh my god this is the son of the creature from the Black Lagoon here helping us out.
1: <laughs> Years ago, I remember meeting Jeffrey Rush briefly at a, a Toronto Film Festival event. And he was, I, you know, I don't know him. You, you, you would know this more than I would. But he seemed like a very nice person as well. You know, of course, he's incredibly talented. But he seemed like a very nice man, I thought. You know, was he the kind of actor on set that helped kind of uh, all the other actors kind of bring their A-game because they wanted to keep up with him and, and he was a good cheerleader in that regard?
0: Oh, most definitely, you know, uh, I won't say who it was. We had one actor who was, you know, nervous uh, about being in scenes with Jeffrey. And Jeffrey went over and like comforted, you know, and and was comforting and, and uh, very supportive and stuff like that. So, yeah, he was, he was great. And I think because he was there, I think, yeah, everyone was, you know, knew that this was like a deal, you know, that, that they should be uh, doing their best work. So, uh, yeah, we had a great... But they, most of them were, you know, uh, solid actors anyway. So they were all solid actors.
1: Oh, absolutely. And speaking of, we should talk about Jeffrey Combs. Um, now, you had worked with Jeffrey Combs before on Perversions of Science. But, of course, here, you know, he's he, he's playing uh, the heavy and, and a total nut job psychopath doctor. How did Jeff get involved in, in the picture? Well, he was like, you know... Uh, uh, he was like somebody that I just wanted to be in the movie, and I,
0: I I called him up and I said I said would you do this part? I said that's small, but I really would love to have you on the set. And uh, yeah, and he was happy to do it. And uh, you know what's what's interesting about it is he's really not in very much of the movie, but people think he's like the star of the movie. You know, because he's he's so his his has so much presence in the film. I guess
1: I would say Je- Jeffrey Combs is an actor because of that presence that will be in films and not have a ton of, of of screen time maybe, but kind of people will feel him throughout the whole movie or something. It's like the film he did for for Peter Jackson, The Frighteners. And I said this to Jeffrey when he was on the show. People watch that movie and they swear that Jeff is in like the whole thing. He's not in it that much. And I think that's just because Jeff has such great presence as an actor.
0: He He does. He's one of the few like modern movie stars, I think. You know that that is in there with the Jack Nicholson and you know the and the and that kind of
1: thing, and and so. you went on to continue working with Jeff on on several other uh, projects. Do you like having that kind of relationship with an actor where you can use them in, in lots of different things? And, and and does it help you kind of develop a shorthand with that actor?
0: Yeah, I mean Jeffrey is just such a good actor and. Yeah, we're on the same wavelength, you know. First of all, we're both Beatles fans, so it's like we've got, we're always talking about the Beatles. But, uh, yeah, uh, no, it, it, I like having actors that I can sort of count on. I say, oh, you know, I can go get so-and-so and they'll deliver the goods. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Jeffrey, you know, I, I, when I did Fear.com, I had him come on and play a, a, a detective. And then when I did um, Parasomnia, uh, I thought, you know, I really got to have Jeff in this, you know, and he was uh, gracious enough to come on. So I, I didn't have a lot of money when I was doing that. And he was gracious enough to come on and play the part. And I said, Jeff, here's the thing. I'm going to let you play. I'm going to have you play a film noir detective, which is a part he always wanted to play. And I said, that's who you are in this movie. So he, he had a great time.
1: And it was also fun in House on a Hill to see the little Peter Graves cameo. How did that come about?
0: Well, you know, the part called for somebody to do like one of those uh, unsolved mysteries thing, you know, the you know, Bob Stack sort of thing or Peter Graves and and they called up Peter and he was happy enough to do it. So it was great. It was great having him there. I only I didn't get unfortunately too much time to talk to him because it was he was just there for one day and we were you know very busy. So uh but I did the uh, I think i've got my picture taken with him someplace but yeah it's you know peter Graves. I and mean, he goes way back
1: the movie is really atmospheric and i and i you know watching it again and i've seen it quite a few times but i watched it again to prepare for for talking with you today and like you know i, I love the attention to detail in, in the production design and, and in creating a sense of atmosphere and and i know you've talked about in the past how sometimes in, in in genre nowadays atmosphere is sort of left behind and, and you know how important it is to a good uh, ghost story in particular. Um, did you guys spend a lot of time on the on getting production design right and building that atmosphere and getting that look for the film so that that you could accomplish that?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that was an important thing. I thought if we were going to do a ghost mo- movie, it really should have a uh, really haunted feel. I was trying to like come up with uh, things that would help that along. You, um, you know, w- when I wrote the script with Dick, one of the things I put in there was the whole thing of when you could, went down the stairs, there was these cases with... Uh, you know the horse and rider, and the you know all the plastinated uh, uh, bodies and stuff like that. And I wanted it to really have a creepy feel, you know. And uh, um, you know, and of course, setting it in a, in a former mental institution that's now being turned into a uh, residence. You know, it was that, that was all stuff that I I thought would help that. You know,
1: in the original film, it's. Um, I can't remember the name of the house that that they filmed in. Do you remember the the name of the house from the original film?
0: Yeah, I think it's the Ennis Brown House. I think, and it's still around, right? It, it is still there. Yeah, it's a, it's a landmark. I think it'll be preserved forever because it's a you know one of Frank Lloyd Wright's one of his best known pieces. You know, we actually looked at shooting there, and it just wasn't practical because. What people don't know about that house is that the rooms are small, and it's, it would be very difficult to actually film in there. Uh, that's why, even in the 1959 one, they didn't film there. They shot, you know, they shot the exteriors, but the interiors were on stage.
1: Right. I mean, the, the whole movie has this great Art Deco kind of aesthetic to it. Um, is that a particular aesthetic that, that you're fond of that you enjoy?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I that was one of the things that uh, Michael Riva who uh, uh was the production designer at the time he and I talked about that uh, sadly he's passed away but he he was uh, um, Marlene Dietrich's uh, not son-in-law but uh, uh, he was related to Mar- Marlene Dietrich in some fashion anyway uh, so he he had a good sense of uh, art deco and so forth and and uh, that wasn't a hard uh, sell because uh, Joel Silver was in the art Deco as well so you know that, that everyone was on board with that and we had a really good art department who understood that there was a lot of drawings and stuff done there was really a lot of pre-production art that was done
1: one thing i wanted to ask you about that i think a lot of um you know direct aspiring directors or young directors might not be as knowledgeable about is is lenses on on um On a film like this, you know, when you're trying to accomplish certain uh, moments of, you know, terror or uh, atmosphere, or you have people who are closed in in spaces and you're trying to accomplish uh, a sense of claustrophobia, how do you work with your DP or cinematographer in terms of deciding what lenses to choose?
0: Well, I have to, you know, start by saying I I have a a substantial background in cinematography. I mean, I was a, a photographer when I was... 12 years old my parents gave me a four by five Graflex, which is like just a crazy camera to give to a kid you know so i learned and back then um uh shooting a four by five was about 50 cents a shot and this is a long time ago that was a lot of money and processing it was about as much so it was so it made you really think about composition and lighting and all of that stuff so i had a, a you know, substantial background in that. And so when, uh, actually I can be kind of annoying to a DP and I I understand because I will tend to be very specific, you know, and and sometimes step on their toes. And and if I've stepped on your toes in EVDPs, I apologize. Okay, but (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, because, but I think to be a really good director, I think... uh, um you have to you should really know everybody's job on the on the on the set, and you should try and know it almost as good as they know it now, of course, you want to have people who are better than you are, but you should really know all of that stuff and you should know sound and and lighting and camera work and lenses and so forth. so uh, yeah, I mean, you know I collect lenses, I have a collection of vintage lenses and it's funny because I was watching in, uh, uh, some documentaries on uh, on uh, YouTube. One of them was about Orson Welles, and he was talking about that. He was saying the same thing I was saying, which is everyone should, you know, know, should know to be a good director, you need to know everybody's job. And the other thing was apparently Stanley Kubrick owned his own gear, which I didn't know until recently. He had his own cameras and lenses and stuff like that. So he was a collector and all that stuff i didn't know that either yeah. yeah in fact he shot like barry linden and and stuff with his own camera and his own lenses so.
1: so when you're working with with a dp do you guys uh spend a lot of time in prep going through and story like, looking through the storyboards and discussing how you're going to achieve certain looks and certain shots or like what's sort of your your preparation like well usually what i do is i, I will uh Get together with the DP and we'll look at stuff that we like
0: and say, okay, this is the kind of look we're going for. We'll pull up movies or stills or and I have a good still collection, or even artwork sometimes, and we'll look at that and say, We, we want this kind of feel. So uh, and by the way, you know, one of the DPs I work with is a guy named Christian Sabalt, who's a wonderful DP. And I first met him on the house on Haunted Hill, he was the second unit, and uh, I was very impressed with the work he was doing. And we subsequently, you know, made uh, uh, Fear.com and Parasomnia together. And the way we would work is, you know, he is a very giving guy and very, uh, it's like I can I can make pretty specific suggestions to him and he doesn't get upset. But then he does the same to me and I'm totally cool with it. Like he'll, we'll do a take and he'll go, is that good? And I go, Christian, no, you're <laughs> right. That was not good. We'll go redo that, you know, or he'll he'll set some light, and I'll go. Christian, do we really need that light? Can we turn that light off? And he'll go, okay, you know. So that's the kind of, but but I think you have to be, you know, you have to listen to people, even though you have very specific things. You you don't want to like uh, shortcut people's you know input because a lot of times they're going to come up with stuff you never thought of. And it's better than what you thought of. So you, should, you need to be open to that. So even though you might know their job, you know, it's like, you know, you, you need to really be able to listen to people.
1: I don't know what it's called necessarily, but and I, I'm guessing it's a post effect, but but the kind of jitter thing that Jeffrey Combs, it's often him that does it when he's moving and stuff. Uh, it's it's something with the shutter maybe, or I don't know. Uh, but, but how did you accomplish that?
0: Well, that was in camera, actually. We did it on the set. Uh, yeah, what we would do is I had this, I had been experimenting for a long time with different frame rates. And I think you can see some of that, My early, some of my early stuff, as you can see in uh, Tales from the Crypt, my first Crypt episode. And by the time I got the house on Haunted Hill, I had come up with some ideas that I really wanted to try out. And uh, there's a scene where Jeffrey walks across the room, which is often a lot of people point out it's like a super creepy scene where he walks across the room. It's on a video camera. And the way that we did that was, uh, we'd rehearse it at normal speed. And then I, uh, would have, we'd shoot it at six frames a second. And I would have him do it at one, you know, six, you know, whatever it is, whatever amount of, whatever percentage that is, uh, slower. So he'd do it at like a 20% speed or something like that. And he would walk across uh, the room in that speed. And we'd run the camera at six frames a second now. And then when he'd stop, I'd have him make a move that's like really quick, which turns into a blur. And uh, that's how we accomplished that. And I remember getting a call from the production office going, who spent that money on that effect? You know, uh, I didn't authorize uh, any uh, effects. I said, Oh, we
1: did it on camera. Oh, okay. It's a great effect. It works really well.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was great fun doing it. And it turned out even better than I thought, because what I knew about doing it, is I said, well, you know, when you walk really slow, you can't possibly walk with the same gait that you do when you're walking at speed. So I knew it was going to come out looking strange in some fashion it turned out uh, much cooler. And when than,
1: it's uh, it's a, sort of a a, a, a a trick you've used now in some subsequent films, and it seems to work every time. It's just cool. It's creepy. There's something about it. I've seen it
0: knocked off a few times, too. I've seen it. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah it's been ripped off. That was the first film I saw it in. I think maybe it seen something like it in a music video or something, but that's the first movie i remember ever seen it in. And now it's like there's especially, I think, in the early thousands, there was a bunch of horror movies that stole it. Um, you know that's got to be flattering right? yeah
0: it's it's nice it's it's you know uh, yeah as they say copy is the best form of flattery or something like that
1: that well in that sequence with the uh, bridget wilson where she's looking through the camera and she raises it up and there's nothing there and then she looks through it and then she sees jeffrey you know and they're can they look up that's such a creepy cool sequence
0: oh it's funny we don't want us writing that because i wrote that uh sequence i, I remember i was at the typewriter in my back room and and uh uh this is when i was still doing stuff on typewriter and i remember i, I was sitting there typing it and i was going she looks down and, and there's no and there's people there's nobody there She looks up at the and, and she puts the camera back up and she sees these people and then and then the phone rang and i was like wow <laughs> like, okay this must be working
1: <laughs> you're like that's a good scare Sometimes people that don't make genre films have asked me about that before. Like when you do you have do you know when you've designed a really great scare? And I've always thought you know like sometimes you do. Sometimes you're like yeah this one's good. Do you get that feeling sometimes when uh, you know when you're writing a scare and you're like yeah okay I really this one's gonna work. If it creeps me out when I'm writing it, I think fi- I figure it's probably
0: gonna work. You know I think that's my my test. Yeah. You know uh, and there's been stuff that I didn't know was gonna work that did. Uh, most notably, on the end of um, my Tales from the Crypt, my first Crypt episode, there's a scene where um, the, the girl, uh, uh, Molly, who has the, uh, the, the saw with the little blade on it, spins and you see her face in it. And I remember shooting that and going, well, this is pretty cool, but I need an ending for the the show. And, I, and then I, I could never think of anything. And of course, when we saw it in the, in the final cut, I went... I didn't need it. There it is. You know, it works, you know. So.
1: No, it was great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great shot. Um, the decision to have Vanica never speak, was that always the case or was there a, ever a period where he, where Jeffrey would, would get to say things? Yeah, I mean, uh, we never actually thought of it
0: as that that was ever going to be a speaking role. I mean, and, uh, and I wasn't sure that Jeffrey would want to do it because it wasn't a speaking role, but I thought it was like an important enough role when he saw it, maybe he would do it, and uh, and of course he latched onto it and uh, made it his own, and and like I say, now everyone thinks it's like he gets as much screen time as everybody else, you know, and it's a,
1: yeah, I guess he's the, he must be the only actor that returned for the sequel. I think is that right? I think so. Actually, I, I don't
0: remember the sequel that well because so, I didn't. I wasn't involved in it, but but yeah, I. I Uh, I think he was the only actor who returned because I think they shot that overseas. That wasn't shot here. Uh, House on Haunted Hill was shot here in in, uh, Santa Clarita, but I think that was shot maybe in Hungary or Romania or someplace.
1: And the, the roller coaster stuff was shot in Florida.
0: Yeah. We shot that in Florida. Weirdly enough, my office when we were making House on Haunted Hill was in Santa Clarita and I could look out and see magic, magic mountain and their roller coaster and we called them up and they said, no, no, we won't let you use it because they didn't like the way we were going to portray the roller coaster. I said, but it's not really broken. It's just, you know, that's that's the, the, the gimmick. I said, it's not there's nothing wrong with a roller coaster. You know? But they didn't like the idea of showing the roller coasters running off the rails and stuff. So. So it was only Universal. We had to go to Universal, which is another movie company. To, the, they get it, you know.
1: Yeah, that's I love that bit at the roller coaster with, um, you know, when they're on the elevator and Jeffrey Rush is explaining yeah. stuff. And uh, I think it's James Marsner's from the from Buffy fame is the cameraman. Right. And he's yeah. jumping. Yeah, up. He was great. <laughs> yeah, he was
0: yeah. great. Yeah. That was, his, that was all him, too. He was. He came. Oh, really? Like that. That oh, great.
1: that's great. You know, I, yeah. I didn't remember that it was him yeah. in the movie. And so when I watched it again now, I went, hey, there he is. The design for the sort of darkness—it's sort of like a Rorschach meets Lovecraft type creature. How did you guys decide how to create it?
0: I had a Lovecraft idea in mind when I was doing that, but but uh, what um, what the the concept was? I said the the ghost should be actually a, it should be an amalgamation of all those people who died, and I thought, what uh, why don't we get a bunch of girls? with like branches on them and and uh, uh, shoot it and uh, will composite it. And uh, I was able to get Bob and Danny Skotek because having worked with them on Creature to come in and do the effects on the movie. And they did a great job and they really latched onto it. I want to say something. People think that there's a bunch of CG in House on Haunted Hill and there's not. There's only two shots that are CG. Everything else is practical. And that shot is all practical stuff that was composited you know, and, and co- co- composite electronically, but it was, it's, uh, it's still old school. And um, that was done, like I say, taking elements and then marrying them together and mixing other elements with them. So,
1: yeah. It's interesting because when I watched it, I could tell it wasn't CGI. And I was, so I just wasn't sure how it was done because it doesn't feel like CGI. It, it doesn't quite look like CGI. Not to me.
0: Yeah. No, it wasn't CG. The only CG shot. There's only two CGI shots. One is there's a shot of Bridget Wilson coming up the staircase when she turns from the from the mist into her, and uh, uh, from a ghost into her. That one shot. And then the only other shot, which is weird, is just like the rope burning on the on the thing holding the door. That's it.
1: How did you accomplish the part where Jeffrey Rush is standing? on the platform and the roller coaster comes flying right past him
0: uh that was comp- pop composited we actually did not have him next to it because it would have been too dangerous yeah he would have been safe i mean where he was he wasn't that close to it but okay i was afraid like just the blast from it just the air going by you know could have thrown him off the side or something like that so So we actually shot those as two different pieces and composited. them. No.
1: Yeah. You, you get the Oscar actor and then you kill him. Wouldn't have been good. (laughs) That would be bad. (laughs) When you saw the finished movie, were you happy with it immediately? Like what was your reaction to the, to the film when it was all done?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I was like 95% happy with it. I mean, I think, I think that we accomplished what we set out to do. The only thing I was unhappy with, I was always unhappy with the ending of the film. I thought, I had an alternate ending and, um, you know, I couldn't convince the producers at that point. We, uh, we'd already shot uh, stuff and and we would have had to go back and I couldn't talk them into going back and fixing it. So.
1: what what was the alternate ending you wanted to do?
0: Well, the alternate ending really was that, that we'd bring the, the, that the ghost would turn back into live sort of looking people. And, uh, uh, and, through a series of things, we'd never have the only time you'd see the ghost, that ghostly thing with uh, any of the people's faces in it, was just with um, mm-hmm. uh, FAMKE. And then the rest of the time, when when the ghost hits Jeffrey and wipes him away, after that they'd turn back into the the characters. And then through a circum a, a bunch of circumstances, they'd wind up opening the door and and letting the uh, two two people. You didn't like
1: the thing of them, like, sitting there going, how are we going to get down from here, that whole bit? Oh, no, that was fine. That was fine. Once they were outside, it was fine. It was the stuff that happened
0: in between that I was not not happy with.
1: I know that the people uh, I saw online posted, how did they get down from there? And I I was like, who cares? I don't know. The movie's over at that point.
0: (laughs) Actually, we did have a thing. I don't think it made it into the film, but uh, I think we did have, like, a... uh, you hear a um, Coast Guard helicopter
1: going, oh, we spotted a couple of people on the building, you know, and, and, you know. How did the film do on release? Was it, was it, did, it, did it have a good release? Did it do well? well it made number one.
0: We were, it was a huge hit, actually. Made number one, and I think worldwide it did over like $140 million, you know, so it was, it was great, you know. So
1: I have no complaints about that. Were you ever in talks to do a second film? Um, no, what happened really was, uh,
0: they had right after house on haunted hill, they offered me 13 ghosts and I was just, I was ready to be shoveled into a grave at that point from making house on haunted hill. And I just didn't feel like I could, could, uh, go through that again so quickly. So, uh, so I passed on it. And, uh, and then by the time, um, they were doing this, actually, I was responsible for the sequel in a sense because I had uh, lunch with uh, uh, Steve Richards, who was in Joel's office. And I said, I don't understand why you guys aren't making a sequel to House on Haunted Hill. It was a big hit. And I saw the light bulb go off. <laughs> in his head. So, uh, you know, but they never offered it to me because I think they wanted to do it, you know, fairly inexpensively. And, and uh, you know,
1: so it was fine. Did you ever see the second film?
0: I think I saw it once. I, I don't really recall a lot because I think I saw it on videotape, which is not the best way of, or not on videotape but on a DVD, and I don't think that's the best way to see it. I
1: probably should go back and watch it. You know? They did like a choose your own adventure thing where you could like pick how things would happen in it with your control, with your remote.
0: Interesting, yeah.
1: It's funny, I tried to sell them on House on Haunted Hill. I tried to sell them on the
0: idea of releasing two or three different endings you know and not tell anybody just different theaters you know but uh, they, they didn't go through.
1: i was wondering like did they ever release the film with any of the gags like the with the william castle style merjo type stuff was there ever a plan to do that when the film came out
0: no i think the only thing they did was at the premiere they had like you know some of the ballyhoo that william castle would have done at the premiere in, in westwood they had like a ambulances outside and you know to keep people awake right (laughs) that kind of stuff but no i I don't think there was ever any plan to to do any of the emergio which was
1: too bad you know yeah that would have been a fun gimmick right skeleton go flying over
0: yeah i don't know what it would be these days you know back then it was just a balloon with a uh, a skeleton painted (laughs) on it
1: (laughs) i've never actually seen footage of what they did for that stuff is that all it was is a balloon with a skeleton on it it was a life size
0: uh, shape of a man, but it was a balloon with a skeleton on it. That was it.
1: And it came out on wire. Was it a, like, was it a fun gag or was it just stupid?
0: Uh, my recollection is that people were laughing at it and they were throwing popcorn boxes at it and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody took it very seriously.
1: <laughs> I, I, they probably weren't meant to, though, right? I mean, William Castle was kind of a. Yeah,
0: it was just something that, you know, the people tell, oh yeah, they had this thing and get people to (laughs) get it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too. It's one of the things that I think for younger people now when they, particularly for horror movies, is, you know, the problem I think with seeing certain horror movies not in a theater is that kind of hockey game-like atmosphere that you get of people yelling things and throwing popcorn. And, you know, when you just watch it on Netflix or something, you don't get any of that.
0: Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's not the same experience.
1: Yeah, like have you any of your none of your films were made as direct-to-video titles? Were they? They've all been theatrical.
0: The only one that w- that wasn't was Parasomnia, because by the time that came out, the whole the- theatrical thing had tanked. So, uh, you know, you know, not, nowadays, in, unless you you know have a two hundred million dollar movie, you're not going to get theatrical release.
1: And after you did yeah. House on Haunted Hill, you was that, did is that when you did Masters of Horror for McGarris?
0: Uh, that was after, uh, that was later actually. I did uh, Fear.com. Oh, it was Fear.com. So, okay.
1: Was that for uh, the, the same guys that did House on Haunted Hill or how did that come together? No, that was actually for the same
0: guys that did Creature. It was for Moshe Diamant and his, uh, his company. So uh, oh, okay. Yeah. And that was shot in uh, Luxembourg and some some locations in Ger- and Germany and France too.
1: Was that your first time mm-hmm. shooting outside
0: the US? Uh, no, cause I had done my second Tales from the Crypt in, uh, England. Oh, okay. And, uh, that was, that was interesting. Yeah. How do you like shooting abroad? I like it. You know, I mean, uh, England was, was an interesting experience. I mean, it was great. Uh, uh one thing that's great about there is you get set dressing and, you know, they'll show up with a door that's 400 years old and, you know, it's like you get props and stuff. You just don't get here, you know? Right. Uh, uh, what, was weird, what was weird in England, though, was that we'd be shooting, and if tea time rolled around and you were in the middle of the take, they'd pull a plug in the middle of the take, and I've never seen anything like that. Oh, they the don't US. even finish the take? No, no, you'd be shooting, suddenly, eh, camera shuts down, you go, what happened? Oh, it's tea time. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. I thought
1: that was like an exaggerated
0: yeah. thing. No, it is true, and I was I, I was like shocked. I went, okay, that's that's interesting.
1: <laughs> it's a good thing you're a pretty like you seem like a very mellow director. Some directors would probably lose their shit over that.
0: <laughs> well, I was I was slightly miffed at that because it was at a very important sequence and and uh, when when it was difficult to shoot. But you know what are you going to do? It's just you. That's what they do. So. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that was weird about it is I was shooting at Ealing Studios, which is a great old studio. And but what was weird is I'd go there every day and the guard at the gate every day would ask me who I am and where I'm going. And finally, it was like day 30 and I went, you know, I've been coming here for 29 days. You should know my face by now. Well, and there's a lot of great crews out there, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, the cru- crews are great. And, uh, and it was very much I felt like I was making a hammer horror film. It was, it was great.
1: And what was Luxembourg like? Was it a similar kind of experience or?
0: No, Luxembourg was very different. Luxembourg was very dark. I mean, Fear.com is, a, is probably the darkest movie ever made on every level. And, uh, and, and a lot of that's because Luxembourg, um, I mean, in, I think I was there for almost a year. And during that time, I think I saw the sun maybe six times you know, and it would rain every day, and it was very dreary, and, uh, you know, the people were very nice, and, uh, but, you know, they had a bridge in town that they had to put a cover over, because people were jumping off the bridge on a regular basis, landing on the houses down below. Oh my god. So, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was grim, but, uh, you know, maybe they got better weather now. (laughs) (laughs) But they were very nice. Look, I like, I don't want to rag on them. The people of Luxembourg were very nice, and and we were able to get people from, you know, Luxembourg and Belgium and, and um, France and Germany and stuff like that. It was a very
1: eclectic bunch. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was fun making the film there. Did, did that script sort of come to you through the film, the producers? Or was it a project that you, like, how did you sort of get, get attached to the material? No, it was,
0: they already had this, the script or the story that they wanted to make. And uh, you know, I was basically a hired gun on that. And my job was really to give it some kind of style and and uh and as much substance as I could, you know. So uh um yeah, it was uh, uh there were uh we did a lot of rewrites and and there was stuff going on during the, the production as far as rewrites going. So it, it wasn't ideal, but it had, uh it, it was it was still good, I think I I, I'm happy with a lot of it I'm not, i don't think it's a completely
1: success, successful film, but you know why do you say that that it's not a completely successful film
0: well, because uh I think that had we had more time, we were rushed into production because of uh, uh there was going to be an actor' strike, and because of that uh, we were rushed into production. And I think I would have liked to have been able to spend more time on the script and stuff like that but but uh, I did have a great uh, crew, great cinematographer christian Sabal came on and and uh, it's been reviewed as one of the most beautifully shot films. You know, so uh, I have to agree. I think Christian did an amazing job with it.
1: I think Stephen Dorff is great in it, too. It's a really strong performance by him. Yeah, and
0: Natasha. I, and Natasha was great. Yeah, it's... Uh, and of course, we got uh, Udo Kier at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> so.
1: Gotta love Udo Kier. I met Udo Kier a few years ago at a Toronto Film Festival party. No, it was a Rue party. And uh, he's wacky. He was so much fun. I enjoyed hanging out with him.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's a fun guy. Uh, I had great fun with him.
1: Yeah, he's neat, and he has some really great stories. He told me some really fun stories about uh, you know make. He's been making movies a long time.
0: Oh yeah, he's been at it for a long time. Yeah, yeah.
1: Stephen Ray, he was in the film. He was
0: he's great. Stephen Ray was great. He was great to work with, and uh, uh, you know, we'd get into long long discussions because uh, you know he's. He's very uh he, he was very into political stuff having to do with the uh, with the Irish and all of that stuff which which I'm not much into and he was like filling me in on a lot of stuff but we had some good really good conversations
1: he, he's he's a very smart guy and how was Steven Dorff on the on the project he seems like an actor who can be pretty intense was he was he was he intense on your show
0: Steven. Uh, yeah, he hes very intense, but uh, we got along great. And uh, again, we were sort of—he had played, uh, Stu Sutcliffe in one of the Beatles movies, you know, the about the Beatles called Backbeat. And we had a lot of conversations about that. So you no, know, we got along famously. I—I I, I liked him a lot. And I didn't realize when I was shooting it, I didn't realize that he was in the, uh, um, what was the called the Pit? Is that the name of the movie? Which one? It's the, uh, he, I think it's called the Pit. It was like a little a Canadian film. Uh, oh, The Gate. The Gate. The Gate. The gate. That, that was at The Gate. Yeah. And I didn't realize he was the little
1: kid. Yeah. And,
0: you know, so that was great. And
1: it was cool to see Jeffrey Combs in the movie playing a very not Jeffrey Combs like role. He, he We hadn't got to see Jeff do much of that kind of thing before. So that was fun.
0: Well, that was, you know, that's how I, I got him to do it because we were shooting overseas and we had to fly him in and. You know, and and uh, you know, I said, uh, you know, you get to play a, a different kind of character. You know, she was happy with. You know, he usually gets to play mad
1: scientists and stuff like that. And I said, well, you're not a mad scientist. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you're getting to go very far from Herbert West. One of the things I noticed that that's interesting in the movie is that the movie's called Fear. dot com, but then the website is called Fear. dot com. dot com. Was that like because someone had the domain or something? Is it was it that kind of thing?
0: Yeah. You know, that's one of the things I could beat Moshe up over because it's like, <laughs> you know, they could, have the, they could have bought the website, you know, fear.com. First of all, I'll tell you this I was going to, I always hated the title because I didn't think it really suited the movie. And I, I, I told them, I said, I won't make the movie if you call it fear.com.
1: And I read that the, the the all the like mutilated bodies in Pratt's apartment were were real bodies by like some German sculptor or something. What's the story with that? I I don't know anything about that to be honest with you. Uh, okay, uh,
0: your guess is as good as mine. What was real though is that we had some torture sequences where we actually got a German dominatrix to come in and actually because we had this conversation, we were I remember we had this production meeting going okay we can either get some very expensive makeup effects guys to come in, or we just do this. (laughs) It was cost effective just to do it. So uh, there's actually stuff we had to cut out because it was too intense. There's actually footage shot in 35 millimeter that put your hair in there.
1: Well, I, I read that the film originally got an NC-17 rating. Is that true?
0: Could be. I don't know. I, I wasn't around when they were getting the ratings. I actually... Cut a couple shots out of the film out of the U.S. release because I knew it would never fly at Warner Brothers. So I, I, I just took I took, made a preemptive strike and just and took took those out. They are still in the the a uh, Euro version. And it's
1: interesting too because yeah. I mean the movie came out at a time where I think the internet was sort of still in a period where it was a bit of a wild west, and there was some pretty fucked up stuff that people were just stumbling into on the internet. Was that part of the fear you guys were trying to tap into with this film? Was that? Oh oh yeah. You know, I'd gone to,
0: I'd done research. I'd gone to a couple of websites that this is really fucked up, you know? And I said, well, you know, uh, when you make a horror film, I think it's about telling the truth and that sounds weird, but it's like, I I think you, if you're doing a psycho killer, you know, you've got to portray him as a real psycho killer, not some, you know, you know, a uh, bubblegum version of that. So uh, so we, we made him a very, very dark character, which is probably why, you know, some people didn't like the film is because it's very, you know, it's, it's very dark. And uh, and the real thing is dark. So I, I thought it was something that we had to, to, to do. So, you know, that's what I did. I was going to say, that's why we used, you know, some real stuff in it.
1: Was it the kind of movie, though, because of the subject matter and the locations? Like, was it the kind of project that you finished and you're like, oh, that was not a fun kind of thing? Like, was it, you know, did it did it have a, a, a taxing effect on you emotionally?
0: You do it once and, you know, you, you don't want to do it again. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it was almost something like, it was like catharsis. You know, making House on Haunted Hill was so hard and in its own way a dark adventure that when I got to making House on Earth, I was in a very dark spot. And I think that was sort of the catharsis of, you know, exercising that. So, you know, that's why if you look at Parasomnia, it's a much more brighter film. I mean, it's, uh, it's you know, maybe dark sequences, but
1: I'm talking about it, so it's a much more, uh, you know, Hopeful film, I guess. I was going to say, it's the William Malone version of a brighter film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's still that's, not that's lasting true. or anything. Right.
0: But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because you know, the ending of Parasomnia, some people think that's really dark. I thought it's very hopeful and, and a cheery ending, you know, but I, I guess a lot of people don't think so.
1: No, I know what you mean. I mean, <laughs> you know, watching Fear.com again, I was like, wow, you feel like you need a shower at the end of that movie. Like it's, you know, it's pretty
0: Yeah, that's a, that's what me said about it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it it is kind of the vibe. It, I mean, it's it's also it, there's a visual style to it too that's not um it there, there's nothing peppy or upbeat about the film. It's just very morose and and it's scary though. It's a it's a horror film, right? Isn't that the point? I,
0: yeah, that, that is the point, is, it, you know, is it, it, yeah, I mean, it's supposed to be scary and dark, you know, and that's, uh, we succeeded on that maybe a little too much.
1: Well, I guess because, you know, and if, if someone who is a fan of your work, you know, coming off of something like House on Haunted Hill, this is a very different vibe. House on Haunted Hill is a blast. It's a lot of fun, you know, and this is not that.
0: Yeah, I think that's why, uh, also why the, the reaction to House, to Fear.com wasn't so good, is right. because People expected another house on Haunted Hill, which it definitely was not, you know. And it's interesting because I think people are now uh, accepting fear.com for for itself, you know. It's interesting as films age, when they come out, it's just like the John Carpenter's The Thing. When people, when that came out, it got slagged by everybody. And I remember going to John Carpenter. I, I, I met him. I bumped into him at a... At a, a, a restaurant and i I told him i said this is going to be considered a masterpiece i said right now maybe people don't like it but it'll be a masterpiece later on and what happens is as films age they're taken out of their place in history in other words because you know when the thing came out it was uh you know in the same league as you know uh uh, et and a, a bunch of like Well, it came out
1: like a few weeks after E.T.
0: Yeah. So everyone was expecting that, you know, and when it came out, of course, it wasn't that. But now it's lives in its own space. It lives in its own world. And so people can accept it for what it is. And I think the same thing is happening with fear.com in the sense that people are accepting it for what it is and not trying to say it's something else or it's not it's not House on Haunted Hill. It's not.
1: I think also it's it's you know the kind of film for to me that where you know it it sets up to accomplish something and it accomplishes that and if that's not your thing that's fine but for people who like horror movies that have some teeth and are actually a really get under your skin horror film it knocks it out of the park so you know yeah it's not house on hill it's a completely different thing and if that's your thing i think it's you know I, i think it absolutely accomplishes that Masters of Horror was something, and I know Mick Garris a bit, and he's such a great ambassador for, for horror and horror filmmakers. The Masters of Horror thing, you know, they, was such a cool concept and such a neat uh, thing that Mick put together and seems like such a difficult thing to get up and running. And I don't, I don't know. I'll have to, I've talked to Mick about sort of how he did that. But were you attached to, the, to, to it very early on? Did Mick approach you about it quickly? Well, yeah, I mean, you have to understand the, the Masters of Horror thing started out as a dinner,
0: and uh, and one day Mick was in my living room, and, and I said to him, I said, you know, we don't know any other uh, uh, horror directors because we, we're not involved with them. You know, we we make our own movies. And I said we should have like a coffee clatch. I think was my word of, of horror people. So he, he took it, took that, and and ran with it, and created this dinner. That we had over here in in the valley here and and uh at the first dinner we had like Guillermo del Toro and and uh, uh you know uh, uh gosh I can't remember uh, Larry Cohen and and Wes Craven and just all these uh you Toby Hooper and all these monster you know horror mavens and uh and I remember the name came out of Guillermo del Toro because there was a uh a, a birthday party that was going on nearby and Guillermo stood up and said Happy birthday from the masters of horror <laughs> and that's how it's how the title came and we never took it very seriously it was just a, a name and we started having dinners and then uh Mick got the idea to turn it into a show and he was able to uh uh you know get uh some uh producers to get on board who had the money to make it happen and uh yeah I mean for, from the get go I was going to be one of the people who was you know uh uh, going to be doing one of the shows so you know he got you know John Carpenter and and you know all the aforementioned and, and Don Coscarelli and those guys and it was it was great and the the premise of the show was that the directors could do whatever they wanted to do they had final cut they could do whatever show they wanted to do and uh, they'd be left alone to do it as long as they came in on time and on budget so that was the the premise of the show which was a dream come true if you're a director, you know? So, so, you know, Mick made it happen. He was very supportive.
1: It's interesting to to watch the series and see that some directors seem to have really flourished in the format and others, not as much. Um, like, you know, and I think every episode is interesting in its own right and for different reasons, but, but some people really seemed like they embraced, you know, doing it this way. And I know uh, Stuart Gordon, who was a, a, a good friend of mine and who I know you were friends with as well. He loved what the whole Masters of Horror thing was. He, uh, he told me he thought it was a blast because he said, you know, we had Mick put together great people and we got left alone because Mick was kind of in charge of this thing. And you got to really do something that you wanted to do. Did you feel that way about, about what you got to do with the show? Yeah, I mean, look, the only thing that Mick, the only constraint
0: that Mick ever put on me was originally he handed me the script uh, and I was afraid of doing it. Uh, I wanted to actually do another script that they had. And I was afraid of doing it because it was, I I thought somewhat sedentary. And I know myself too well. I know that I'm a director who I can watch paint dry if it's on film. (laughs) So I didn't want to be making a film that was going to be so sedentary. And then, uh, and Mick really came to me and said, well, please, we we need you to do this script. I said, okay. So I I worked with... uh, uh, the writer, and, and we made a few changes on it. And uh, uh, most notably, originally, it, it was uh, supposed to be, instead of the musicians, they were like a, it was a, a husband wife who was the, the husband and wife. He was like a cop, like a, a country sheriff. And and uh, there was like a, a witch and stuff like that. And I said, well, let's, you know, that, we've seen that. I said, we've seen the country bumpkin witch thing. I said, why don't we make it, Something that nobody's ever seen before, let's make it crazed musicians, crazed classical musicians. I said, you know they've never gotten any love. Let's make it. <laughs> so that's that's what we did and and uh yeah, I mean, it was great because we were able to do whatever we wanted to do within the constraints of the budget and um yeah, I mean uh, it was it was a great experience and and uh, I think the reason that some of the shows uh that the the directors didn't really flourish in was because i think some of them probably are more used to having a producer who's more involved in making like uh putting constraints on them and and some directors flourish by having constraints put on them they do their best work when they have to like fight for something or you know and uh uh that was how some I think some of those things happened. That'd be my guess. I don't know
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the episode you did uh, is one of the better ones. I think. I think it really. I think it's great. I think it works so well. It's so creepy to hear that you weren't that jazzed about the script. It feels so much like the kind of story that, that that you would like to tell. When I watched it, it just seemed like something from watching your work that would be up your alley. Well, like I said, I think it's because it was so
0: much—the original script was so much up my alley. I went, no, you know, and uh, but once, you know, once I, I started embracing it, and like I said, worked with the writer, and we came up with some some sort of quirky stuff. Then I, I then I, you know, I saw that it could be something that it would be good, you know, and and uh, you know, we had a good makeup guys and and uh you know it was a good team it was a good team and I, and I got a dp who actually wasn't their regular dp but he was a really good dp and and he totally understood what I what I was trying to go for and and uh we got along very well so yeah
1: it's a great looking episode of the series too it's i think it's one of the best looking episodes the, the creature uh, is amazingly creepy and it's kind <laughs> of a it's kind of a sad tale isn't it it's it's kind of there's It's tragic, yeah yeah well
0: i i I think if you look back on a lot of my stuff there's there's a sort of melancholy that sort of uh, goes through it, and I can't explain that except that I guess I'm a melancholy character in some fashion.
1: I have a theory i'll I'm going to show you my theory about horror filmmakers that i've so over my career, I've gotten the great opportunity to get to meet some of my favorite horror filmmakers and horror directors. Guys, you know, and I I got to write a movie with George Romero, who is a hero filmmaker of mine. And and I got to know John Carpenter and I got to work with uh, with Stewart a bit and and not we were working on something not long before he passed away. And, um, you know, and I remember going to see the the screen of Parasomnia. And and I think Toby Hooper was at that. John Lannis was there, I think. Does that sound right? No, not John Lannis. Uh, Joe Dante, Joe Dante. Probably people who don't. Yeah. No horror work in show business. Yeah, like, yeah. Are horror movie directors like really intense? Are they, are they really, you know, they make these scary, gross things. And I'm like, they're the most chill filmmakers you'll meet. They're the most relaxed directors I've met. Comedy directors are usually a pain in the ass, but horror directors are always the most chill guys. And I, my theory on that is something to do with, I think horror directors get their dark stuff out in their work. And that's why they're often sort of chill people. Does that make sense to you? Do you know what I'm saying? Well, I,
0: I think so. I think you have to, I think to be a good horror director, or to be a horror director at all, I think you have to make peace with the demons that you have inside because everybody has them, you know? And I think that it's just easier to put those out in the in film than just to live them in real life. So, yeah, it's funny you said that because like some of the... uh uh I've worked with a few comedy actors, and they're the worst people that you want to work with. I mean, a lot of them, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. <laughs> totally. You know, it, it, uh, I can't. I can't explain that. You know, they just are. Uh, they're curmudgeon. A lot of them are curmudgeons, and they're they're just cranky. And you know, I, I'll say that. Look, Chris Kattan was in House on Hot Hill. He was not that way. He was great, but. But just I, uh, you know, I've been on other sets and going, oh my god! I know please. I was
1: on a set once, and I won't say who it was, but you know, a very well-known comedic actor, you know, kind of legendary in that in that set, who I always thought was so funny was on this thing. And man, what a fucking grump! Like he was so grouchy, and I was so disappointed. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to make a comedy,
0: out and out comedy. It would be no, like be the kind nightmare. of comedy I would want to be
1: <laughs> making would be something closer to like the kind of comedies that I think Stuart Gordon was doing, you know, these Stuart did. I always thought Stuart's movies were hilarious, but they were Stuart's brand of hilarious.
0: Well, I, love, I love Stuart. Stuart was such a great guy. I'm so sorry that he's gone.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, when Jeff Combs was on, we talked a fair bit about Stuart and, and, uh, he was such a, a cheerleader too, for horror and for young horror filmmakers. Cause when I met Stuart, I was pretty young. I was like 22, 23. I'm 40 now. And, uh, and I, his email was listed on IMDb, his personal email. And I just found it and was like, well, this can't be his email. So I emailed him and it was him. And I was going to L.A. for a meeting for a, a TV show I was going to do. And Stuart said, let's go grab lunch together. And we became friends and he would look at scripts for me and give notes. And, you know, I, he was wonderful that way. He was a really caring guy.
0: He was great. You know, I, I'm, I'm still horrified that like the L.A. Film School, he was teaching at LA Film School and they fired him because he didn't have a teaching certificate. I'm going, is this the way our state works? It's like you get one of the best guys and and he was a great teacher. He was so so kind and and, and uh nurturing to the students and stuff. I'm going
1: That's bizarre. What? I mean, and <laughs> you know, this is Stuart Gordon created organic theater and I mean, can you imagine having Stuart Gordon as your teacher? <laughs> yeah, it was insane. Yeah yeah did you ever go in and like uh, speak in one of his classes or something?
0: yes, i did and i actually i i've spoken at a couple uh classes you know so um yeah so it was it was great and uh, very very good experience yeah good uh, good students and a lot of students willing to
1: to learn have you ever thought about doing any teaching teaching film writing of, of that nature?
0: I taught briefly uh some uh students and the problem is I'm too truthful, so it's not good. People ask me questions <laughs> about, about the film business. I it's, it's not good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're they're all leaving going, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably not a good <laughs> idea.
1: Well, let's uh, let's talk about your the last feature that you did, which is Parasomnia, which for me is a fun one to talk about because I got to go to I I don't know if it was a test screening, but the movie wasn't really out. And I remember I had I was living in L.A. at the time and Jeff Combs called me and said, do you want to come to this screening of my friend Bill Malone's new movie? And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I love Bill Malone's work. It's I'm so excited. Yeah, Let's do that and Stuart was there and like we talked about a bunch of other I think I'm pretty sure I remember I have this picture of me and Stuart and you and Toby Hooper and Jeff all at that screening.
0: Right. Yeah, that movie was at the Academy. And that was it, it was it wasn't, really, it wasn't completely finished. I think we still had some temp music and stuff in as I recall.
1: Yeah, that sounds right. And I thought the movie was great and it was fun for me to get to see it on a big screen because of course as you said it didn't get a theatrical release. So in my head I'd think of of the film as being theatrical because I saw it on a big screen. Is it true that you, that you kind of, that was, that the movie was something you put together mostly yourself. Like it was a passion project for you kind of a, uh, kind of a thing.
0: Yeah. I, I, you know, I basically financed my friend, who actually was one of the original financiers on scared to death. He and I financed the picture out of our own pockets, which is not something you should ever do by the way. I know Uh, I've done that. (laughs) And uh, yeah. So uh, yeah. uh, Yeah. It was a, Something I really wanted to make, and I, I, uh, I have since actually done a uh, um, a new version, a sort of director's cut, and uh, which has got new visual effects, oh, some new really? visual effects in it. Where I've replaced some of the stuff that was CG with uh, uh, miniatures and, and real effects. Yeah. So it's a.
1: When will it, is that something you're going to release?
0: Yeah, I'm planning on releasing it a little later this year, maybe. What made you decide to go back and change things? Well, it was stuff that I always wanted. It had been haunting me because it was stuff that, that we sort of got. Uh, we needed to get the film out to try and get some money coming back in. And, and uh, so there was some visual effects that I thought were really not uh, the way I wanted to do them. And, and uh, so we replaced, like I said, I replaced a lot of the... Uh, uh, stuff that was CG with uh, some miniatures and they look way better. Gotcha. It looks really good. And
1: how did the cast get put together? Did you, you know, I know that of course, Jeffrey Combs again, uh, but did you know some of these actors prior or, or, or what was sort of the casting process? Well,
0: Patrick Kilpatrick, I had known uh, from working on a show called uh, was it Sleepwalkers or yeah, I think it was a show called Sleepwalkers.
1: Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: and uh and then I, I had um and he also with uh uh there was another actor too on that show that I used in parasomnia and then um yeah the cast and then generally we put, just put out a casting call and and uh Sherilyn finn uh she came right at the very end uh she was like the last person that we saw for that part as, as uh laura baxter and she uh she was great uh I, you know, I saw her immediately. I said, yes, that's, that's the girl. So
1: we got her and and we were very pleased. Patrick Kilpatrick's fantastic in the movie. He's really good. He's a great performance. He's so menacing,
0: you know, he's just got this,
1: you know, and, and, and uh, I had actually
0: originally had, uh, was going to try and get uh, a name actor. I won't say who, but to play the part, but uh, they kept wanting too much money. And I said, okay, so I, I got Patrick who, who uh, you know, we, we paid him a good amount of money, but he he came in and and uh, did a real good job, I thought. And I'd worked with him before, like I said. And he he added a real nice menace to the part.
1: Yeah, he was fantastic. Um, and Sean
0: Young, Sean Young, yeah, Sean Young, Sean Young came through. Uh, um, Jeffrey Combs because uh, Sean was uh, managed by the same manager, and Jeffrey suggested her. And I never thought we could get her in a million years, but. But uh, I went over to her house, showed her the stuff that we'd shot, and she said she'd love to do it. So I was thrilled. So we threw her off a uh,
1: little story building. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I read on IMDb that one of the creatures was a design from Fair Trial that you didn't use and that you built the creature yourself. Is that accurate? Yeah. What happened was it was actually I designed the creature actually
0: for parasomnia. And we were uh, doing Masters of Horror. And, you know, I, you know, I said, nobody's going to see both of these movies. I might as well rip myself off. <laughs> so, uh, so but, but I did the version for Parasomnia. I did the version that I actually thought it, it should have been because it, when I did the Masters of Horror, I had to, like, make it much more simple because, just because I knew that the, being a, a TV schedule... Couldn't possibly get it done. So when we came to doing parasomnia, uh, I thought, you know, I can I can make it more right. of the character that I really wanted it to be. So not that I, not that I'm putting the, the other version down, but it's just it's, it's it was just a practicality situation.
1: The new version of parasomnia that you that you said you put the uh, these changes on stuff like is it a finished thing or is it something that you're currently working on?
0: Oh, it's, it's just done and ready to be uh, released. Actually yeah I just have to get it out there so uh yes yeah, so I'm just gonna make some contacts and see see if I can get it released properly uh but yeah it's uh yeah, I can give you some basic concepts like I said, some of the visual effects are different and much better and the uh and it's much more straightforward Those the other one's got flashback stuff going on this does not it's it's a tells it's the story's told in a very Sort of linear fashion which i think works for the movie much better like again there was things even even though that i financed the movie that i was being pressured at the time by distributors and uh other people to make changes in the film and uh and i and also get it out in time so you know we'd spent oh my god i think we spent nearly two years making that film so yeah so you know the time had come but but now looking back, I was able to actually fix the things that I wanted to fix. Right. And, yeah. and I'm not doing anything that wasn't part of the original plan. This was all stuff that we wanted to do from the
1: get-go. Is it something you think you'd like? Uh, you're just looking for a distribution partner to put out the new cut? Or? Well, either that or we'll put it out ourselves. I'm not
0: sure yet. depends on you know if we get an offer that's, that's reasonable, you know. Uh, and there's still a lot of markets for that film. So I, I think that uh, we, you know, we should be able to get a fair, fairly decent offer on it. Yeah.
1: That. I th- and the, even the original cut that came out, like, I don't even think I tried to get a Blu-ray of it to watch, to talk to you before. Like, so when I was talking to you, I, I could make my notes and stuff. I couldn't even get a Blu-ray of it. I had to, I think I found it on a, on a VOD thing, like a streaming thing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, the, uh, uh, our deal is up. Yeah, our our deal is up with the distributor now, so uh, you know, so we can release it. You know, did you film the the
1: on the same soundstage as House on a Hill? Yes, that's
0: correct. We actually wound up getting the same soundstage, which was weird. You know, it was we were on the same stage where the uh, the upstairs set was. Yeah, and uh, that was great. It was great being at that location.
1: You seem to to enjoy using mental hospitals as a setting for your scary movies. I, I probably
0: have a, <laughs> you know, a fear of, a, a fear of doctors and medical stuff. I don't know. <laughs> I thought about that <laughs> myself. I was like, well, I always have like crazy doctors or.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mental hospitals, crazy doctors. Like you do when you're watching a, a filmmaker's work and you're, you get a little analytical. I was like, I wonder if Bill had like some trauma in his background where he was, Well, mental hospitals are creepy. I mean, especially these old ones, you know, where you're like suggesting torture and all that. People were allowed to be tortured in them not that long ago.
0: Well, you know, when we were shooting, um, my second, my crypt episode that was done in England, we shot in a former mental hospital. And and it was only because it was, it wasn't actually supposed to be a mental hospital. They had, it was a building that was really weird because the, the front of it, 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 on each side it looked like each like four or five different locations. Like one side looked like it was like some sort of like you know southern, you know, Southern Bell mansion, you know. Uh, and then one side looked like a police station and another side looked like a hospital. and then another side, it was the weirdest building. but it turned out to be a former mental hospital. And when we went to film there, the, they, they came out, the location manager said, well, you know, before you f- can film here, they insist that you have an exorcist come and exercise the place. I said, really? <laughs> yes. I said, okay. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so when we were filming there, uh, we went down into the basement very briefly and the basement was like really medieval. It was the creepiest place I've ever seen. And other parts of the building were like, Oh, you know, the green tile with the the tubs that they put the patients in. And it was very, it was very weird. Anyway, uh, so I'm filming and I'd hear some of like the crew members go downstairs and they go, oh, yeah, let's go check out the basement. And so they go down to the basement and they'd be down there for like 10 seconds. And you hear this (laughs) running up and they were like terrified. So, yeah, I don't know what was going on down there. Oh my god! But that—that that probably the guy from
1: Scared to Death eating Pop Rocks.
0: <laughs> I guess probably. <laughs> anyway, so that, maybe that influenced some of my uh, future films. I don't know.
1: I mean, it's you know one thing that's interesting hearing you talk about your love of German expressionism filmmaking is there's definitely some Dr. Calgary in the movie. Oh, good. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> was that was that intentional? Like, were you mindful of that when you were making it? Not really. You know, I think this stuff is so,
0: I've soaked it in so much that it's just like part of my being now. So I don't really think much about giving a movie style anymore. I think it's just this, what just is, just, you know, oozes out osmosis, I guess.
1: (laughs) And when the film came out, how did it do? Like, did it it get a sort of a smaller release than you had hoped for? Well,
0: Parasomnia, yeah. I mean, you know, you hope for that it's going to be a big success, but it came out at a time that was everything was going in the tent in, in the, the toilet, you know, and films along with it came out in 2008 or 2009, to 2010, somewhere on there. I can't remember the exact date, but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, just, uh, it wasn't good, you know? So, and, uh, we, we didn't uh, make our money back on the film, which is sad.
1: Well, it's a good movie. I hope people will see it. I hope, anyone who's listening to this podcast that hasn't seen it will go and check it out and, and look for that new cut. What are you working on uh, these days, Bill? What's what's up next? Any Are you putting anything together? Yeah,
0: actually, uh, I've got a shoot coming up in a couple of weeks, which we're shooting uh, some test footage on a project, and hopefully we'll get them, you know, it was a project that was we were ready to shoot uh, before the pandemic, and then uh, that went in the toilet because of that. So now we're shooting. Uh, I'm re- rethought some one of the characters, our main uh, creature, and um, we're going to, uh, you know, see if we can get that going. So, uh, so I'm, like I said, I'm shooting in a couple of weeks. We're shooting some test footage, and uh, we'll see what happens.
1: Can you tell me anything about what it's about? No. <laughs> <laughs> There's a the creature. We know that much. It's about it's about ninety five minutes. <laughs> I'm
0: sorry, but actually I I have this feeling now that if I talk anything about it, it'll, you know, put a curse on it.
1: Oh, you're, you're superstitious. Got it. All right. All right. right. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your films with me. I really enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun. Well, it's been fun for me too. And and, uh, thank you so much for having me on your show. Oh it's it's anytime. I I love uh, your work and it's it's been really enjoyable for me to get a chance to sit down with you and kind of delve in and talk about how you did all these great projects. Well, thank you.
2: you've been listening to Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and edited by Felipe Ojeda. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork and design elements generously provided by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you, and the most important thing you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, Instagram at all one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. Be sure to post, comment, share, and like, but don't forget good old-fashioned word of mouth still goes a long way, and the best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Friends, family, co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.